Hashem, Hashem, Nasev, and Atzliach, Shiur Torah. Baruch Hashem, always good to be here. Um, we are now up to uh, number 78, Baruch Hashem, in the series, the uh, Musar Pirkei series. Uh, getting a lot of really good feedback. Uh, so thank God I'm not the one that's actually rating my own Shiurim, because I'm more critical on my Shiurim than you guys are. Uh, but... Um, Unfortunately, some bad news today. I uh, got uh, a uh, uncle of mine in uh, Israel passed away. Uh, so the uh, shiur will be to Eilu Nishmat Asher Ben Rachel. May Hashem have mercy on him. And Bezat Hashem, all of Am Yisrael. Um, to all of Am Yisrael. I don't think we have a list prepared today, but to uh, Doris Bajora, David Ben Esriach, Levana Batsara, Sarah Bat Levana. And all of Am Yisrael, Bezat Hashem, will have refuat anefesh, refuat aguf. And Amash, uh, uh, the uh, the situation in the world today, um, I don't know if it's happening to you guys too, but from my perspective, it seems like every day it's worse than the day before. Every time I think it can't get any worse, it continues to get worse. It seems like the since Rosh Hashanah, since Rosh Hashanah, there's been a uh, really a ridiculous amount of uh, tragedies that are getting closer and closer to home. Uh, and the Jewish people, for better or for worse, I don't know, it seems like they're still sleeping. They're still sleeping. It seems like people are still not realizing that there's a disaster looming. I, uh, a very righteous woman told me today that uh, she's been having awful dreams. Awful dreams and this strange feeling of uh, something, chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, uh, expected to happen. So, again, you know, it's a... Maran Masech Barchot says that most dreams are stuyot, most dreams are complete nonsense. Uh, once in a while there's a meaning to them. It's rare, but it's once in a while there's a meaning to them. But either way, we don't, we don't necessarily live our lives based on dreams. The point I'm trying to make is that you don't really need dreams to see that the world is on fire. You know, you, uh, you're seeing uh, the Hollywood, the a.k.a. Sodom and Gomorrah becoming exposed it's like the um, tide is returning and now we're seeing who's swimming naked. You know, there's been uh, this molestation, disaster of all types of disgusting behavior in that industry for, for decades. But apparently it's coming to light now. Uh, I also found out there's a uh, someone that uh, we know is related to, unfortunately, one of these kids, or when he used to be a kid, was in this uh, horrendous ring of pedophilia. Uh, he was one of the victims, unfortunately, in Hollywood. Um, and then you're seeing that the uh, politicians, uh, honestly, it seems like they're, uh, I'm not sure who is a bigger criminal, them or the mafia. Every day, another politician is convicted of different crimes Stealing, killing, this, that, whatever. It's like, you don't know who to trust anymore. You don't know who to rely on anymore. 
You know, so, and this is not even just from a religious perspective. This is just from like a human perspective. You know, because a lot of kids today, especially secular world, you know, the secular world mainly, um, look up to these people. They look up to these uh, fancy schmancy actors and politicians and celebrities of different types. Everyone wants to be a famous lawyer. Everyone wants to be a famous doctor, a famous athlete, a famous movie star, and so on and so forth. And little by little, you start realizing that every one of these famous people is a miniature Esav. He's a miniature Esav. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he has a lot of skeletons in the closet. Male or female, old or young, white or black, doesn't make a difference. It seems like they all have the same instruction set written by Esav. And to me, from my perspective, I think I said this a week or two weeks ago, someone that's not following the instruction set given by God, the Torah, is really putting their lives on the line. Now, I don't care if you're Jewish or not Jewish, because the Torah is for both. Obviously, the Jews have different laws, more laws, more laws, more extension, extension of the laws to the Jews than the Gentiles, but... The reality of it is that if anyone is not following the instruction set of the Creator is really seriously putting their lives on the line. And I'm not even just referring to Olam the world to come, heaven, hell. That's not even what we're getting to yet. I'm talking about this world here. And it doesn't even matter if you believe it. It actually, it's even at a point that the world today is so awful, so disgusting, so corrupt, so just wicked that it doesn't even matter if you believe the Torah is real or not. It's irrelevant. It's still a better instruction set than anything else you can come up with. It's still the only way for you to have a remotely decent life. Obviously, if you believe it and you follow it and you obey and you connect to the Creator, you'll have the ultimate life here in the world to come. But the point being is that the world at large has gone to the point where from my perspective, who am I, Bechlal? But from my perspective, if the Mashiach doesn't come soon, he's not going to have anything to save. Because the problem is no longer with just the Goyim. We used to think, oh yeah, the evil Romans, the evil Nazis, the evil this one, the evil that one. Okay, evil always exists, it's nothing new. Then you thought, okay, you know what, maybe it's a small sect of Jews that are not such good people, they're communists. Okay, so Hashem is going to take care of them. Then you're talking about some people that look as more religious than any of us. You start finding out the skeletons they have in their closet, and you're like, ah, they're worse than some of these Nazis, because at least the Nazi, you know he's a Nazi. Machshimam. And you don't understand who to trust, who to rely on, what to do, what not. So I think today it's become more critical than ever to follow the Torah of Hashem Barach because if you don't, you're doomed. In this world and the next. Now, one of the things that I see is a constant problem in both the secular and the uh, religious world 
I notice it more in the religious world, unfortunately, because we expect more from religious people. You know, when you have a secular person acting as if they should have the same clothing as a cow, you don't really get upset at it because the person thinks that him and the cow is the same thing. She doesn't wear any clothes. He doesn't have to wear any clothes. It's not his fault. It's his parents' fault for educating him to think that he's the same thing as a cow or a monkey. But when you see a religious person acting like a cow, then you start getting confused. What does it really mean to be religious? Does it mean that you wear a certain type of clothes? Does it mean that you say a certain type of prayer? A lot of people contact me and they tell me, yeah, I've been uh, religious for... uh, Two years, three years, I'm already wearing black and white. Like people, for some reason, have been so confused to think that wearing black and white somehow makes you religious. Going to synagogue somehow makes you religious. Going to Beknesset a few times a year makes you religious. Giving tzedakah makes you religious. The one thing that we're all forgetting is that we learn from this parasha. We learn from this parasha something extraordinary that really goes more extensive in uh, about three weeks from now. But this particular parasha, we see that Yitzchak has two children. He has Yaakov. He has Esav. He says that he loves Esav. Midrash Me'am Loez, Midrash Rabbah, a few other places say that he really knew that Esav is a Rasha. But it says that he loves him, meaning because he kept him closer, because he knew that Esav is so wicked that if he let him loose and he exposed him and he said, listen, Esav, I really know you're a Rasha, Esav would have become worse. So he kept him closer. Not like today where any time Sometimes you hear these awful stories in a religious world. The kid doesn't feel like keeping Shabbat, so the parents want to throw him out of the house. Okay, it's not good that he doesn't want to keep Shabbat, obviously. But to throw him out of the house, you're pretty much guaranteeing he's going to be a little Esav. You're not helping him. You can't just throw kids away. You did something for him not to want to keep Shabbat. It's not his fault. He still doesn't have an opinion yet. Until a kid is at least over 20 years old, whatever opinion he has is by default wrong. By default. Anytime you have an opinion before the age of 20, by default you're wrong. Why? Because you don't know what you're talking about. Tachlis. Bottom line. You can be smart. You can have an IQ of a thousand. Doesn't make a difference. Your opinion is wrong. Why? You have no life experience. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what love is. You don't know what hate is. You don't know what loss is. You don't really know what's going on. The only ones that you that know something are usually kids that unfortunately Shem and have experienced a lot of loss in their life. Those are, you know, young adults. But for the most part, in our generation, kids that are under 20 years old and in some cases under 30 years old, they don't know anything. They don't know anything at all. So to throw out a kid at 12, 13 years old because he doesn't want to keep Shabbos, guaranteeing that he's going to be a little Esav. But the same token, to just let him do whatever he wants is also not uh, not a good idea. 
So we learned from Yitzchak Avinu that he knew Esav was a Rasha, but he kept him closer to contain it. Hopefully he does Tshuva at some point. But later on, in a few weeks, we're going to find out that Esav, the prophecy that's in this parasha, comes true, where when Rivka says to Yaakov, run away now, because I don't want to lose you and your brother in the same day. And Chazal say that this was a prophecy that uh, she didn't realize they were both going to die or be buried. They were both going to be buried in the same day. And a few weeks from now, we're going to find the story of how when Yosef uh, finally tells his brothers who he is, and then they all come to Egypt, they bring their father Yaakov, after 22 years of not seeing his son, they live together happily for 17 years, and uh, eventually Yaakov dies, and they want to go bury him. And then the Midrash says that Esav comes to the Ma'arat HaMachpelah and gets in the way. He gets in the way. He says, listen, there's only one spot left in Ma'arat HaMachpelah. It's for me. Esav. So, Yaakov and his brothers say to Esav, listen, we know that you also come from uh, Avraham and Yitzchak and everything. Yeah, good for you. But we have a deed. We have a signature that you sign, a contract you sign with Yaakov. You sold it. You sold your share. So he says, show me. Show me. We don't have it on us. You know, it always happens. You need something, you, have, you, know, you never have it. You don't need it, it's always in your pocket. So we don't have it. It's like, yes, if you don't have it, you can't bury him right now. So... Naftali, one of the tribes, was extra fast. Like ridiculously fast, like the superhero movies they make today. Like the Flash. The Flash is like Naftali. So, Yehuda, the leader of the tribe, said, Naftali, no, go get the contract. A few minutes. He starts going, he starts running. But now one of the uh, sons of Yehuda was deaf. And uh, he sees his grandfather, his holy grandfather, Yaakov, sitting over there. The body's just sitting over there. He says to everyone, No, what are we waiting? Our holy grandfather is sitting out here in the heat. So one of them, one of the other tribes, says to, says to him, We're waiting because Esav... Won't let him in until we show him the contract. So he only understood. Esav won't let him in. He only stood, understood. Esav won't let him in. He says, what? Esav won't let my holy grandfather get buried. And he'd rather have him in the sun. The holy Yaakov Avinu is going to be in the sun. He got so angry. He took a bat. And he smashed Esav in the head so hard. He chopped off his head. And his head rolled into the Merat HaMachpelah. His head rolled into the Marat HaMachpelah. And the deen, Allah is, wherever you find the body, that's where you bury it. So they decided, since the head was inside Marat HaMachpelah, they buried the head of Esav inside Marat HaMachpelah. 
So that's the pshat. That's the basics. The question is, in Shamayim, the sages ask, why did they bury, why did Hashem allow this whole event to happen where Esav's head, his huge head, was buried inside Me'arat HaMachpelah? The answer is, is that his head had a ton of Torah in it. His head had an enormous amount of holiness in it. Remember, his brother was Yaakov Avinu, the head of all the Avot. His father was Gdola Dori Tzchak Avinu, was excited to be slaughtered for the sake of Hashem's name. His grandfather started monotheism, Avram Avinu, giant of all giants, jumped into a fire for the sake of Hashem. Jumped into it, they didn't push him. He jumped into a fire. He was surrounded by Torah better than anyone you could ever even imagine. Imagine learning with Avraham Avinu. Imagine learning with Yitzhak Avinu. Imagine learning just from the book that Yaakov Avinu wrote, a verse he wrote somewhere. Imagine just learning one verse, you already become holy. This is who he had next to him. So Esav knew an enormous amount of Torah. But unfortunately, even though he had all this Torah in his head, his desires of the body took control and didn't allow what's in his head to be practiced with his body. So his head had a potential to be gdolado. His head had the potential to be the head of six out of the twelve tribes. That was the original plan of Hashem to give him an opportunity to be a head of six out of the twelve tribes. Six Yaakov, six Esav. That's the original plan. He would fight the evil of the world. Yaakov would spread the Kedusha of the world. That was the job. But because his desires for money, for sex, for food, for any type of material desire took control and he let it run his life, the only thing that had any value whatsoever was the Torah that he learned a long time ago, but the body was a waste. The body had to be eaten with the maggots like everything else. It became worthless. Unfortunately, today, there's many, many Esavs in all of us. And the reason why is because just like Esav couldn't control his midot, couldn't control his desires, many of us sometimes can't control our desires. Many of us can't really control our likes, for certain things, to such an extent that we, come, we become addicted to it. There's no problem with enjoying with the beauty of the world. There's no problem. Hashem actually says, if you don't enjoy something that I gave you, you'll be punished for it. There's no problem of actually enjoying the world, if you will. The problem is that we make our entire life about it. The problem is when we become addicted about it. There's no problem for you guys to eat food. There's no problem eating food. The problem is if your whole life is about food. If every five seconds, all you can think about is food. You see a Sefer Torah, you're imagining a burger. You see a, uh, you see a Bet Knesset, you're imagining Sudash Lishit. <laughs> all you can imagine is food. It's a problem. That's a problem. That's why Isav is called Edom. Because he's so materialistic, he can only imagine the food that was in front of him. It's no problem... Having nice things. As a matter of fact, there's three requirements that a Talmud Chacham, the Gemara says, needs to have. One of them is to have a nice home. 
needs to have a nice home. Not fancy schmancy 15 rooms, but nice home meaning clean and good home where he doesn't have any problems with thinking there's holes in the ceilings because that could disturb his confidence, could disturb his mentality, can, can disturb his studying of Torah. There's no problem having nice things. It's a problem if you're addicted to nice things. If your whole life is about chasing money so you can get more nice things. And you get to the point, like we talked about yesterday, where your whole life, all you're doing is just buying on Amazon, buying on Walmart.com, buying on Costco, buying on all these websites. You're pressing buy, buy, buy. You're buying so much you forgot to open the packages. You have so many shoes, you forgot you had feet. Some women have so many dresses, it becomes a museum inside their house. They have to expand the house. Not because they need more room because they have more kids. They still have two kids and a dog. But they need more room. They need a bigger house because they need more closet space. That's a problem. It's not a problem to have nice things though. It's a problem to make your life about nice things. It's not a problem... To like beauty. Hashem made people, certain people, beautiful for certain reasons. And that's actually one of the second requirements that a Talmud Chacham should have is he should be attracted to his wife. She doesn't have to be a Sarai uh, Menu, uh, but he at the very least needs to be attracted to her because if he has an attractive wife, then he is confident that that part of his desires is under control. But if he's disgusted by his wife, he can't stay married. He can't stay focused even when he's learning. There's no problem with liking beauty. The problem when you take it too far. When every week you have a new girlfriend. When every five minutes you have a new girlfriend. Sometimes every two minutes people have a girlfriend. The reason why is because today... Unfortunately, just like Hashem gave us the internet for the sake of publicizing Torah, He also gave the internet for the Rishayim to make more sins. And the Rishayim built the internet in such a way that you could literally get a new girlfriend, a new wife in five seconds just by going to certain disastrous websites and people sell their minds, their souls and everything else with it to these websites and they look at these different people and they imagine horrible things. And ruin their neshamot and waste seed with no end and become addicted to wasting seed. So, there's no problem having a pretty wife. There's no problem of being intimate. There's no problem. It's just a kosher way of doing it. So the Torah, actually, unlike what most people think, gave you the ability to enjoy everything. It's just a kosher way of doing it. Now, one of the main things the Torah says is that the Vilna Gaon explains it. One of its Talmidim asked him, Rav, I heard you in a shul, you said that the Midot, the character traits of a person, it's everything. If it's everything for a person to fix his character traits, for him to be have good Midot, good character traits, not to get angry, not to be stingy, not to uh, have all these bad Midot, that's everything. Why did Hashem make 614 mitzvot? You have 613. And 614 have good midot. 
If it's kol adam, if it's the whole person, then why don't you make a mitzvah, have good midot? So the Gaon Mivinna answered to the student, he said, my dear student, the midot is everything, meaning that the mitzvot, all 613 of them, the point of them is for you to use them in order to fix your character traits, in order to put your body under control. Because if your body is not under control, where it doesn't have a schedule, where you don't wake up a certain time in the morning and go pray to God, you don't have a reminder every few moments that there is a God, you don't have a constant learning session every day of what God actually said, and you don't have a constant obligation to fulfill what He said, if you are not fulfilling these 613 mitzvot and whatever of them is actually applicable to you at that very moment, if you're not doing it, there's absolutely no way whatsoever that you can actually have good midot. So the point of the mitzvot is for you to fix your midot. That's why there's no mitzvah for midot, because that's the whole thing, it's the whole package. That's the outcome. The problem is that today we have many religious robots. Many religious balet tshuva robots, many religious from from birth robots, where they've pretty much, body is there, the soul checked out. The body is there. Goes to Beknesset, prays, or it looks like it's praying, it moves. Soul checked out, the soul is somewhere else. Rav Galinsky, Alava Shalom, used to say, there's a pasuk in Tehilim. One of the Tehilim that you read in Tefillah also. There's some with the carriages, there's some with the horses, but us, we're in the Shem Hashem. He says, Rav Galinsky, Allah Shalom says, some people travel with their carriages, with their cars. Some people travel to where they want to be with their horses. But Ami said, all we have to do is hear the name of God and we're already somewhere else. As soon as you hear the name of God, our mind is in Tahiti. Our mind is in the stock market. Our mind is about the baseball game. When thinking about everything but God. As soon as you hear God's name, you're somewhere else. So, many religious robots exist. And the reason why is because we are disconnected from the mitzvot. We're disconnected from the purpose of these mitzvot. And unfortunately, that disconnect is creating many mini asabs, many materialistic people that look religious. Because asab also looked religious. He didn't look like a criminal. He looked religious. He looked like one of the chassidim. If you saw him today, you'd think he's gdoladol. As a matter of fact, when the, uh, later on we're going to find out when Yaakov Avinu fights the angel, it's the angel of Esav. So why did Yaakov not run away? Why did Yaakov not run away? The Midrash says that originally this angel, it looked like a Talmit Chacham, representing Esav. It looked like a Gdol Ador, Rabbi. Came to Yaakov, hey, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Yeah, ta ta ta. And he wants to kill him. So now when we work on our midot, 
there are two different types of character traits, in essence, or how to implement the character traits. The ones that are ben adam lamakom and ben adam lechavero. Character trait between you and Hashem Barach, you and the omnipresent, and the character traits that you work on between you and another person. Now Isav wanted a shortcut. He wanted to learn, but he didn't want to do. He wanted to learn. He learned about mitzvah tzitzit, but he didn't feel like putting tzitzit on. He wanted to learn about kosher, but he still ate taref. He wanted to learn tarat mishpacha, but he still had a few girlfriends that were not Jewish. No problem. He learned about it. He knew all the halachot better than all of us. He just didn't feel like doing it. No, it's not for me. I'm not I'm not at that level yet. I'm not at that level. I'm not, you're, 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 you're religious. I'm not at that level yet. You know those people? I'm not, at that, I'm not at your level yet. As if there is a level. For some reason, the satan has somehow fooled all of us with the same trick. For some reason, we're all fooled to think that there is actually levels in Judaism. There's no levels. There's kasher, there's tameh. There's black and white. All of the people that keep telling you, especially in lectures, confuse the public by telling people about the multiple opinions, about specific halachot. You see a rabbi giving a lecture sometimes, and he says, yes, Rav so-and-so said yay. Rav so-and-so said B. Rav so-and-so said C. Rav so-and-so said D. By the time he finishes you, he's up to Z. And he's leaving, and he leaves the shiur like that. We have 24 opinions. He doesn't tell you, this is what we hold by. He doesn't tell you, this is the final halacha. It's pretty much, leave it to you. And that's why there are many people out there today with the mentality that Judaism is up to debate. It's up to, you know, interpretation. Even though there are certain rules, there are certain things that there is multiple understandings, there is Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Both of them are words of the living God and so on and so forth. The reality of it is there are accepted black and whites. The vast majority, the overwhelming vast majority of Judaism is black and white. It's not countless opinions. And anyone that wants to be a responsible teacher, anyone that wants to be a responsible parent, anyone that wants to be a responsible Jew has to know you have to pick a choice. You have to pick a rabbi, you have to pick a choice, you have to go with it. No more 50-50. Why? 50-50 got Esav to lose Olam Abba. He looked religious, he studied more Torah than all of us. He knew more Torah than all of us. But the 50-50 killed him. Sometimes religious, sometimes not killed him. Going to Beknesset but praying to Avodah Zarah in the stock market got him to gain him. When you're going to the Beknesset, that means you should be in the Beknesset. Your mind is wherever you are. If your mind's in the stock market, if your mind is in business, if your mind is in real estate, if your mind is about some girl, is about, if your mind is somewhere else, just go there. Go wherever your mind is. Because if you're praying in a Beknesset, that means you believe, technically, you're implying that you believe that God is there. So if God is there, how could you be thinking about anybody else? How could you be looking at anybody else? It's bushayich v'chirpa. It's mamash shame. You go to meet God, but you're talking to somebody else instead. Go there then. So, the ben adam le makom, 
It's making yourself holy. Parashat Kedoshim, Hashem says, you have to be holy because I am holy. It's mamash a mitzvah from the Torah. You have to make yourself holy by gluing yourself to Hashem Yitbarach. This is an immense amount of work daily to reposition your mind in every way, shape or form to somehow connect everything to God. If you look at something, connect it to God. You look at the sky, look at the sky, look how beautiful the sky is that Hashem created just for me to look at and enjoy the beauty. Wow, look at the sun that if it would just be just a few degrees closer to us, we wouldn't survive. Wow, look at the milk that the cows are making that it's just for me to drink and it's technically the only food that you can actually survive on purely by just eating and drinking milk only. It's the only food you can survive on where you can only where it's the only consumption. You can't do it with steak. Thank you, Skimmy Sport. You can't do it with chicken. You can't do it with anything else. Only thing you can do it with milk. So Hashem gave us an abundance of milk in the world. And you can literally connect everything to Hashem. Good things, what's looked as bad things, ups, downs, relationships. Everything you connect to Hashem. That's how you make yourself holy. But Ben Adam Lechavero gets tricky. Between a person and another person, it gets tricky. And the reason why is because in order for you to make yourself holy with God, you have to think about what does God want. The good news is, God told you what He wants. He told you what He wants. You have a Torah, you have five books of Moses, you have another 19 books, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, you have a whole Tanakh. He told you instructions what to do. You have the Chachamim, translated the law in the oral Torah. Keep Shabbat, keep kosher, <coughs> excuse me, keep Tarat Mishpacha, keep modesty, and so on and so forth. You have the laws. You have what Hashem's instructions of what to do. No problem. Ben Adam Lechavero is a little trickier. And the reason why, the reason why, is because in order for you to have the ability to know how to have peace between you and your friend, you have to do something called empathy. You have to put yourself in his or her shoes. What do you want? Now many people love, love the mitzvah. Oh, they love this mitzvah. To love your neighbor as you love yourself, love your brother as you love yourself. Oh, they, I'm an issue, and just type it online. Love your neighbor, love your brother as much as you love yourself. You're going to get a million shurim about it, a million books about it, a million articles about it by the Goyim, by the Jews, by the atheists, I think, wrote about it also. Who didn't talk about loving your brother as much as you love yourself? The problem is that for the most part, it's mistranslated. Because people think that to love your brother as much as you love yourself means that whatever you love, you should give somebody else. That's a wrong translation. The real translation is that you have to find out what he loves, not what you love. And give him what he loves. Give her what she loves, not what you love. So let's say, for example, you like steak, but your wife hates steak. 
In fact, she doesn't want to eat meat at all. Now, you think you're doing, you're making a Kiddush Hashem here by making your wife dinner once a year. You think you're a little Moshe Rabbeinu, you made a steak with French fries, with rice, with this, with ve- all the things in the world. She comes home, poor lady, she's taking care of the kids, she's taking care of everything in the world. The whole world is on her head. She thinks she's going to come home, she's going to have something because you promised her already from last year, you're going to cook today. Last year you promised, today you delivered. She comes home starving, she hasn't eaten in a week. Finally she gets home. She finally gets home. She's starving like a sav. Miskena. What does she have? She has a steak. She's a vegetarian. <laughs> she has a steak. She's a vegetarian. Miskena. Poor lady. What a rasha you are. What a rasha you are. You're like, what? Honey, I love you. It's what I love. I give you. Well, I love you. Gonna, they're going to also show you in Gainon what it looks like. There's this steak. What, ha- what happens inside the oven. Problem is, you can't give her what you like. You have to give her what she likes. Same thing in the wife. Same thing with everything in life. People think that you just give people what you like, and that makes you a lover of your neighbor. It's absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. So originally he left because of Kibbut Avayim. His, his mom and dad told him to leave, so he left. As far as him coming back, the reason why he says, why he prayed to Hashem, and uh, he told Hashem, Atzileni nam yad achim yad he told Hashem, save me from the hand of, uh, of my brother, from the hand of Esav. So why? Why is he safe? He's, like you said, he's very strong. We went, when he went to go and he met Rachel, he was able to lift the cover of the well that hundreds of people couldn't live, uh, lift by themselves. So he lifted it like you lift a, the cup. So why couldn't he just kill him? So because the size and strength didn't matter. Meaning that Yaakov Avinu was scared that the one schut that uh, Esav had could overcome everything that he's done. The one schut that he had, which is Kibud Avayim. Plus, when Hashem gave him a blessing, it's been years since then. It's been years since he gave him the blessing. So he said, maybe, maybe, there's a sin that I made since I got the blessing that even the blessing that Hashem gave me Maybe it's canceled out. So that's a different story. But now, as far as between us and our brothers, us and our wives, us and our children, us and our neighbors, us and our bosses, us and the world at large, how do we actually fulfill this mitzvah? So this Mishnah will tell us a little bit about it. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer, Al teratzet chavercha bishat kaso, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, who was a fifth generation Tana and one of the students of Rabbi Mir Baraness, says the following Don't appease your fellow at a time of his anger, don't console him while his dead lies before him. 
Meaning, if someone just died, don't be one of these people that writes on his Facebook page, oh, I really feel bad, I can't believe somebody died, and think that that's actually doing anything for him. I know a lot of people are very social today, and they pretty much want to publicize their life on the internet. Um, I understand. And uh, they actually do believe that the 5,000 friends they have on Facebook are really their friends. So when something happens, they tell people that it happened, this one died, this one lived, this one got married, this one got divorced, whatever, they tell people their business. First of all, it's a bad idea. Uh, but second of all, second of all, the people that are commenting that say, oh, Baruch Dayana Emeir, I can't believe he died, you know, that's not, don't think that you are removed and released from the responsibility of being a Menachem Avelim. Meaning, if you, if I've done it many times myself, somebody says somebody died, I put Baruch Dayana Emet. But that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of being a Menachem, of being someone that's going to actually console him or her at a time of need. So, but it specifically says, don't console your friend when a dead lies before him. Meaning when it's right now. It just happened to Shem like my uncle. Shem You can tell the family whatever you want. Nothing's going to help right now. Don't question him about his vow at the time he makes it. Nor attempt to see him at the time of his degradation. Degradation. Okay. The more you look into this Mishnah, the more you realize it's the opposite of our mentality, actually. So first and foremost, we learn about this Tana. Tana was Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon, like I said, was one of the students of Rabbi Mir And he himself, in Yerushami Masechet Moed Katan, says that the reason why he was gifted the knowledge and Kedushah that he had was due to how he honored his rabbi. Where he got the merit of carrying his stick, his walking stick. And he says just for his walking stick, I got merit for being a chacham. This is how much people actually loved their rabbis in those days. Today they write emails against them. Such is life. Huh? Carrying, carrying the uh, the stick over here. I used to have a stick. So Rabbi Shimon also he has a few famous ma'amarim, famous things that he said, and one of them is that he learns from uh, the Book of Kings, one chapter twelve. Well, it says the uh, the Maase, what happened between the king Rechavam and Yerovam. There was an incident. Now Rechavam was looking to see what should he do with his king, with his kingdom. He's looking for advice. So he went to the elders, went to the old people, the experienced, the mature, the ones that have been around for a while, the ones that know his father Shlomo Melech. And he says, what should I do? And they say, listen, don't increase taxes. If anything, you should be more lenient on the people. Don't increase taxes. Donald Trump. Donald Trump couldn't be a shoe. Uh, the, uh, 
Don't increase the taxes. Be lenient on the people. If you're lenient on the people, they'll love you forever, they'll support you forever. Everything's going to be okay. But then all of his friends, like, come on, man, you know, you got to build a bigger castle. Bigger castle, get a Lambo, get a nice, you know, watch. Jacob's jeweler from Amos over here, get at least two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar watch. You know, they just sold a uh, Michelangelo uh, uh, painting today, Michelangelo or some other, Da Vinci, Da Vinci painting, for $450 million. $450 million they sold for a stupid painting. People, I don't think in the history of, I think even Hashem is looking at it, I don't think we've ever been this stupid. Honestly, I think he's even surprised at how stupid people are today. A half a billion, there's people that don't have food to eat. It's people don't have food to eat. It's people that mamash are starving. And there's some guy spending a half a billion dollars on a painting. I mean, it just, I mean, it, it just, it doesn't get more ridiculous than this. I used to think being on Wall Street was ridiculous. People were so worried about money. They would have this and they would have that and they would buy another house and another car and more. Inve- Fine have like this type of stupidity in the world where people spend an obnoxious amount of money on things that, I don't know why they're even worth, five dollars. Five dollars, I don't know why they're worth. The frame is worth more than the painting sometimes. So anyway, so his friends were young, not young, I mean they were in their 40s, like him. Don't come on, you gotta, you gotta live large, I'm gonna do a show about you. Increase taxes. So, Rechavam listened to his friends. Rechavam made a mistake of listening to his friends and it caused a revolt. Started going against them, created a lot of problems. So Rabbi Shimon ben Lazar says, we learned from a Torah here that if the young advise you to build and the old suggest that you demolish, meaning the opposite advice, the young people tell you build a bigger castle. The old people that have been around say, no, actually, you should destroy the castle. Not only not build, destroy it. He says, listen to the old. Listen to the aged. Why? Because the construction of the young in reality is destructive. And the, and the destruction of the old, in truth, is constructive. page 40. So, the mentality of an inexperienced person is very, very narrow-minded, is very, very limited, and it's based on the wall that's in front of them. A person that doesn't have experience, all they can see is what's in front of them. They don't think beyond the wall. They don't think behind the wall. What is it like? It's like a little baby. A little baby, if you, you know, one of the cute games that you play with all babies, and all of them laugh about it. It doesn't matter what baby it is, they all laugh about it. We play peekaboo. Play peekaboo, peekaboo, you cover your eyes, and then you say peekaboo, and they all laugh. Why? Because in their mind, you weren't there a moment ago. In their mind, when they didn't see you, that means you weren't there. When you didn't see them, that means you weren't there. They weren't there. So something drastic changed. If you hide behind the couch... They start crying. They don't actually start celebrating. They start hysterical crying because they think you left. But not left like you're hiding behind the couch. You left permanently. You're gone. You're never going to come back ever again. 
I know when my little daughter, she knows that I'm going to do a shiur for a little while, she would cry like, oh, Hashem and Hashem, I felt so bad. I don't want to leave. She cries, oh, I can't. Like, I'm just going for a few hours. Doesn't matter if you're going outside, throw out the garbage. In the mind of a little baby, when someone is gone, is out of sight, they're permanently gone. In the, uh, when someone is hiding from a little kid, they're perma- in their mind, they're permanently gone. So, the mind of a young person is not very different. The mind of a, uh, and I don't mean young person just because they're 16 or 20 or 25 or even 45. Young person, I mean immature. An immature person that doesn't have experience, and usually experience, by the way, another synonym for experience is suffering. That's what experience is. Experience doesn't mean you made a lot of money or you lost a lot of money. There's plenty of idiots that made a hundred million dollars and they're still idiots after they made a hundred million dollars. Experience of money is irrelevant. Experience means suffering. Experience means sacrifice. Experience means you did things that were beyond you. That's what experience means. It doesn't mean that you build a company or you destroyed a company or you got married or you got divorced. That stuff doesn't mean anything. What means something is when you've actually gone through difficulty. You've overcome difficulty. You fell and you got up. You had the courage and the strength to get up. That's what experience is. The more you fell and got up, the more experience you have. If you've never felt, if you've never felt pain, you, my friend, are no different than my two and a half year old baby. Now this could be a good and a bad thing. On one end, you've never experienced loss, which means you've had a wonderful life so far. And a bad thing is, any small little thing, any small little hiccup in your life could literally destroy you. So you have to prepare for that. Only the Torah can prepare you for that. That's why you see the Torah being so honest with the difficulty that the most righteous people that ever lived have. It doesn't tell you Moshe Rabbeinu went to the Bahamas. It doesn't tell you Yaakov Avinu took a vacation in Tahiti. It doesn't say that they, uh, you know, they took a break for a few weeks because they wanted to learn and maybe relax for a little bit. Tells you about the difficulty they had. Tells you about the suffering they had, the pain they had. Why? That's something you can learn from. That's something you can learn from. So now, a young person that doesn't have experience, unfortunately, they are the same thing as a little baby and they think that whatever is happening right now is permanent. So if their girlfriend just broke up with them, they feel sad. Because they think that the pain that they have permanently, right now is permanent. And that's why sometimes you see people that break up a silly 15, 16 year old relationship commit suicide. Or sometimes you see that when uh, parent, kids unfortunately are in a broken home, the parents uh, you know, got divorced, or one of the parents died. If they don't work on themselves to overcome this difficulty, they can literally lose their entire life. I know several people that have had losses in their life where either a parent died or parents got divorced. And even though it's been 10, 20, 30, 40 years, they still talk about it. Oh, you know, I didn't grow up with a father. Oh, you know, I didn't grow up in a home with both of my parents. I had to spend some time with my dad, sometimes with my father. Okay, that was 40 years ago. 
I know, I'm sorry, it's difficult for you, I understand. Just like you're sorry for the pain that I had. But you have to overcome it at some point. It's been 40 years. The fact that you didn't have a father when you were 6, 7 years old was difficult when you were 6, 7 years old. Now at 50, you can't use the same card. You can't tell me you're not showing up to Beknesset at 7 o'clock in the morning because your father didn't take you when you were 7. It's not going to hold up any value in Shemayim. It's not going to hold, it's just an excuse. So a young person sees what's in front of him and thinks that's it. He sees that if he lost an opportunity, that's it, he's lost. And that's why Rabbi Shimon ben Razan is saying, they don't listen to him. Who is smart? Who is wise? Someone that has experience. Who am I going to learn out of If I want to be rich, who am I going to learn from? Someone that's rich. I'm not going to go to the homeless guy and ask him how to be rich. If I want to have, if I want to learn how to be a good husband, who am I going to learn from? The psychiatrist charging me four or $500 a month? Or four or $500 an hour? Who am I going to learn from? No, I'm going to learn from Someone that has a happy marriage. Not someone that's just charging me because he has some uh, three letters after his name. Because he went to school for a million years. And it's my problem now. I have to pay for his tuition. The guy went to school for a million years, spent $250,000 for it, now I have to pay for it. Why? He's divorced five times. He's given marriage advice. Tony Robbins, one of them. So anyway, the key is to make sure that you're learning from someone that's Baal Nisayon, someone that actually has an experience, has experience with success, has success with the experience that you're trying to learn from. You can't learn from a youngster that doesn't know anything from, uh, from right to left. So Rabbi Shimon says, if you see the youngsters and they're giving you advice, even though it sounds cool, even though it sounds like you'll be more popular, even though it sounds more innovative, all that stuff, run away from it. Why? Because their advice is one-dimensional. It's 1D. It's 1D. It's just the wall in front of you. They're not thinking about what happens if you push the wall with enough pressure. They're not thinking about it may fall on someone. So, the other thing that... um, Rabbi Shimon also said is that when you're going to rebuke people, there's three things. There's three things that you have to really take serious control over. One is your sex drive. Two is how you manage your kids. And three is how you manage the women in your life. This is in Gemara Masechet Sotah, page 47a. He says, these three things are the three gifts from Hashem. Or they could be three terrorists. Depends. Mm. If you can control your sex drive, you can enjoy a wonderful gift from Hashem, procreate, bring children to the world, and enjoy the process along with it. No problem, everything is wonderful. If you don't control your sex drive, you're guaranteed to go to Gehenom and never leave. It's either you're fulfilling a mitzvah of probu and you're making your wife happy, 
which by the way is an obligation of the husband, not the obligation of the wife. On your ketubah, you write that you're fulfilling a mitzvah to give her finances when she needs, give her shelter when she needs, but also give her sex when she needs. It's not when the husband needs sex. It's when the wife needs sex. So, the reality of it is that if the husband wants something and the wife doesn't, she's not obligated. If the wife wants it, if the wife wants to be with the husband, he has to stop whatever he's doing and he has to do it. Hashem is very feminine. Very feministic. He's very pro, pro-women. pro People think he's anti. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to teach you a few other things about women later in the issue. So, the key is that Hashem gave the control, gave the key to the women. But at the same token, it's to such an extent that if let's say you're doing a huge mitzvah, Huge, big mitzvah. Let's say, I don't know, you're uh, teach, you have a uh, teach, teach Torah. You have a lecture, thousand people. Thousand people. Thousand people, all of them, pikuach nefesh, all of them, mechale shabbat. Pikuach nefesh. Now the lecture happens to be on a day, your wife is coming back from a mikveh. Your wife has to go to the mikveh, become pure. Which means there's a special sanctity to being together, to being intimate with your wife on the day she goes to the mikveh. But you have a thousand neshamot that are on the line here. If you go to the lecture, you're going to come back at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. You're not going to be able to be with your wife. You can't expect to be with you at 2 o'clock in the morning. She's sleeping. On the other hand, if you don't go, there's thousand people may never do tshuva. What do you do? The Torah was given to you to live. The Torah was given to you to live and to fulfill it. You are obligated to your wife before you're obligated to the public. It's to that extent. It's to that extent. Why? Because the mitzvah of being with your wife, no one else can fulfill. The mitzvah of teaching a thousand people, somebody else can do. Somebody else can do. Even though it's a big mitzvah. Your wife is your wife. So now, if you control yourself, this can be a fantastic mitzvah. You can live a happily ever after life where you literally are never looking in the wrong direction. Never even looking in the wrong direction. On the other hand, the mitzvah of children. One time a guy slapped his son in Beknesset because he interrupted the, the tefillah. He interrupted the tefillah. So his father slapped him, thinking that he's rebuking him. So the Chazonish, Allah Shalom, after tefillah, went to the father and rebuked the father. He says, you know what you taught your son? You know what you taught your son? Yeah, I told him not to uh, interrupt Tefillah. He goes, no. He didn't teach him not to interrupt Tefillah. You know what you taught your son? He goes, no, I teach my son. You taught him that it's okay to hit in Beknesset. It's okay to be violent inside a Beknesset. That's what you taught him. 
You didn't teach him anything about tefillah. You taught him that it's okay to be violent inside the Beknesset. So, with children, there's a time to give in, there's a time to be strong. If you're always strong with your kid, you're never giving in, you're overly demanding, and if your kid is not the next door, you hate him, you're destroying the kid. You should not have kids. On the other hand, if you're too lenient and you give your kid a reward just for showing up, he gets a trophy just for being awake, then you are creating a little mini Hitler. You're creating a, 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 the next generation of Hitlers. Why? Because the Hitlers expected the world to please them in every way, shape, or form. Anybody could pass me a tissue, I would appreciate it. So, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, we're in a generation of crybabies. But the point being is that the, the same child can get two different types of educations. On one end, you can encourage him to learn Torah, but if you push him too far, where every time he's late to Beknesset, you're tearing his head off, he's eventually just not going to want to go. On the other hand, if you don't say anything ever, he's also not going to go. So you have to know how to bring closer with the right hand and push further with the left hand. Right hand is stronger, the left hand is weaker. Last thing is with women, same thing with your wife, like I mentioned earlier before, women in general are much more sensitive than men. Men are, in some cases, borderline animals. They don't have many emotions sometimes. So if you make fun of a man, he doesn't usually take it personally. And if he does, he usually gets over it after five minutes. That's a typical man. Some men are a little more emotional. But for the most part, most men are not very emotional. At least they don't express their emotions to that extent. Women, on the other hand, you could literally destroy their confidence in five seconds permanently. For example, anyone that wants to destroy their marriage permanently, not just once, not just for a week, not just for a week, not just for a month, permanently, forever, like it will never ever be the same, you could do one of these things. You could do like what this guy told me that he did, and he told me that uh, he was really upset at his wife. Why? Because she was gaining weight. I said, oh, okay, so you, should, you're gonna, you filed divorce after that, right? He goes, no, no, I didn't file divorce. I'm like, you should, probably you should because she's never going to be with you again. But then I thought this is the worst thing a guy can do until I found that another person, another hero, told me that he told his wife that, uh, excuse me for telling you this, but this actually must be said. He told me that he thought he was doing good by rebuking his wife because she wasn't good in bed anymore. I honestly wanted to call 911 on him. I wanted to get him arrested for doing something so stupid. Maybe send him to a mental institution. He called himself religious. Well, a lot of people call themselves religious today. The point I'm trying to tell you here is that religious, not religious, secular, not secular. It doesn't make a difference. None of that matters. This is human behavior. This is being a human being. 
This is being so disconnected from humanity. So disconnected from humanity to think that it's okay to take a woman's heart and rip it into shreds like a blender. Treating your wife like she's one of your boys is the worst thing you can do in any relationship. So, with that being said, men, if you don't know what to say, be quiet. It's the gift that never stops giving. Be quiet. Trust me, she's never going to hate you for being quiet. She may not like it, because it seems like you're not connecting, it seems like you're not interested, but she's never going to hate you for it. She won't put poison in your food if you're just quiet. She will put poison in your food if you tell her she's not good in bed. She will put poison in your food if you tell her that she's ugly or she's this or anything like that. Different story, different animal, different story. Even if she calls you ugly until from here, till next year, you're still not allowed to do it. Why? Our heart is jelly. It's different, different species. Different. So these are just some of the lessons that we learned before we even got into the Mishnah itself from Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi Shimon Belazar, in essence, what they were saying here is Rabbi Shimon knew and was very sensitive about people. He's very sensitive about people. He was an astute observer of human nature. And you see a lot of the different things that he says throughout the Gemara have to do with Midot. For example, there is a Gemara... Um, Masechet Derech Eretz. Masechet Derech Eretz is all about Midot. It's all about character traits. How to perfect your character traits. What you need to have. What you don't need to have. And so on and so forth. Honestly, I think people should learn this day and night. 24 hours a day. But they should do Pekeavot even before. Because Pekeavot is much simpler. Much simpler, much more literal. And so on. But the point here is that we see from, from him. That already before we learn what he means here. We see already the mindset that he has. He's very sensitive to your feelings, to your wife's feelings, to your kid's feelings, to the neighbor's feelings, to everybody's feelings. So the first thing he tells you, you want to be a friend, you're going to have friends, you're going to have colleagues, you're going to have different people. Obviously, you're going to have different people that have different experiences that are not exactly like yours. So you can't treat them like you are. You can't say, just because I didn't get angry when somebody cut me off, that means he didn't get angry. Just because I didn't get upset when I didn't get a bonus, doesn't mean that he's not going to get upset when he didn't get a bonus. You can't think like that. You can't think that people are going to be like you. My father, God bless him, he always told me that you know I would always get upset at my employees. My employees were like this like thorn in my eye. Not my side, but my eye. My mom, it was like, it would never ever stop hurting. Because no matter what I ever did, it was never enough. It was never, I would always be upset at them. They would always be upset. It was just a nightmare. So anyway, the, uh, my dad would always tell me, like, listen, look at your hand. And I would look at my hand. He's like, you see your fingers? I said, yeah, I see my fingers. Baruch Hashem, I see my fingers. He says, do you have any two fingers that are exactly the same? I said, no. It was exactly no two people are the same. You're expecting everyone to be like you. They're not going to be like you. You come to work at 6 o'clock in the morning and you never leave. They're not going to do that. You come there and work. 
and all the time. You don't mess around. They're not going to do that. You do what you, you're you. They're not going to be you. Why? You own the business. At the end of the day, it's your, it's your stuff. No one's going to ever care about your stuff as much as you. No one. Doesn't matter if he's been working for you for 50 years. The second he has another opportunity, he's gone. There's no loyalty in business. There's no loyalty in anything. And this is news to anyone here that thinks he has friends. In reality, you don't. Everything you have in life is temporary. Because people today, for the most part, there are obviously always exceptions to the rule, and I'm sure there's plenty of people today watching, no, no, I have a friend, they're hugging their friend right now, thinking, no, this is my friend, this is my boy, we're going to grow old together, we've been together for 25 years. Wait and see, my friend. Life will throw some curveballs at you. Life changes. And people's interests change. So now, when you're actually thinking about all of this, I'm thinking of my, my dad knew a lot of stuff. My dad knows a lot of stuff already. He knew all of Pekavot. I figured out the same. This is what Rabbi Shimon is saying. He's saying, when you're looking at your friend, make sure you're not looking at it from your perspective. Make sure you're looking at it from his perspective. <laughs> Meaning, when he's angry, don't go tell him, hey, hey, you shouldn't get angry. That's the worst thing you can tell an angry person. Worst thing you can tell an angry person. Someone that's in the middle of being angry, tell him, no, you shouldn't get so angry. That is like putting kerosene on fire and expecting it to be shut off somehow. It's like pressing the atomic bomb button and expecting it not to do anything. It's the craziest thing in the world. Telling somebody you shouldn't be angry or why are you angry or trying to even calm them down when they've already, they're already lit up, worst thing in the world you could do. What you should do? Be quiet. Like I said, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Be quiet. Wait for them to cool down. Once they cool down, then there's some sense in there. Why? Because the Gemara says, when someone gets angry, all types of genom take control of him. Meaning, he has no sense. He doesn't see straight. He doesn't see left. He doesn't see right. He'll do things, dafka, the opposite of what he's supposed to do. Dafka, the opposite. So you tell him, no, you shouldn't get angry. What is he going to do? He's going to start breaking stuff to show you he's angry. You actually made him angrier. Why? Because you thought that he shouldn't get angry because he's getting angry because his wife made fun of him. He's getting angry because somebody in the office made fun of him. He's getting angry because he lost some money in the stock market. He's getting angry because somebody cut him off. He's getting angry about a bunch of things that you wouldn't get angry. And you're thinking he should be like you. Well, you should learn from my father. My father says, he's not you. Just like your two fingers are not the same. He's not the same as you. He's not the same as you. Why are you expecting me to be the same as you? He got angry at what he got angry at. You're going to get angry at what you're going to get angry at. I can tell you from my personal experience, I used to be, I used to get angry about the smallest things in the world. Baruch Hashem, I still fight it. At least I'm trying to fix it. But big things never angered me. The world can collapse. It doesn't upset me. September 11th, lost a million and a half dollars in a minute. Uh, whatever. Big things, 
I don't usually get upset about. What upsets me, and has always been like my tikkun, is small stupid things. Keyboard doesn't work. Somebody shows up late to the office. An appointment cancels last second. Stupid, meaningless nothings. Those things upset me. Always. Now, Baruch Hashem, I react very differently. But the point I'm trying to tell you is that different people react differently. I remember one time there was a, we had an investment and uh, it was a bad day. Bad day, 9.30 in the morning. Or 9.35 in the morning, I already lost a million and a half dollars. And my brother, God bless him, also lost some money, a lot of money. And he runs into my office and it's like, what are you going to do? We lost so much money. Uh, like he's in panic. And I'm just sitting there looking at the market, seeing what's going on with the news, typing, answering this. Calm as can be. Like nothing happened. And he's looking, he's yelling, and he's, 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 my brother, God bless him, he's fire. He's fire. If you ever want to get motivated, he's a coach. He's amazing. He's fire. You could be dead, he'll bring you back from the dead. He's fire. Amazing speaker, and he's just amazing. He's a professional coach, he's amazing. Alvayu would be, I'm trying to convince him to start doing Kiruv with me. Combination of the two teams, I think we can make all of Amisra Duchua in a week. So he is fire. Now, Boch Hashem, obviously both of us have grown up, experience, we're better today than we used to be. The point I'm trying to tell you is that time, working together, crazy market, just lost a million and a half bucks, me. He lost a bunch of money also. First thing in the morning, morning just started. We haven't even eaten breakfast yet, nothing. He's panicking, I'm as cool as ice, and he thinks I lost my mind maybe. He's like, what's wrong with you? How come you're not reacting? I said, I don't know. What am I going to do? Okay, so we lost. We'll make it back. You know, like, for me, it was just that money never really meant much. And it just wouldn't bother me. For whatever reason, it just didn't bother me. Him, on the other hand, it bothered him. So I looked at him like he's crazy. He looked at me like I'm crazy. The problem is neither one of us listened to my father. My father said, your fingers are not the same. My father said, your fingers are not the same. Rabbi Shimon said, your fingers are not the same. Why are you expecting the fingers to be the same? Why are you expecting him to act the same way you're going to act? He's not. He's different. He has different pet peeves than you. He has different buttons than you. Different senses than you. Ve'afta l'racha kamocha means you're going to find out what his sensor is, not what your sensor is. You're going to find out what he likes, not what you like. That's loving your brother. Not just giving him what you like. Like a lot of people like to give away their old stuff. They don't want to throw it out. They want to give it out. And they figure that everyone's going to love their old stuff. Why do you assume that everyone's going to like your old stuff? Sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's going to go in the garbage. Why? Because I don't want your old stuff. I wouldn't buy it new. Why would I get old? So, But that's the point. People think that everyone's like them. We're not. We're not the same. There's no two people are the same. There's no two fingerprints that are the same. There are no two snowflakes that are the same. Why do you think there are two personalities that are the same? So he's saying, you didn't get angry, he did. You have to judge him based on him. When he's angry, step away. Wait for him to relax. Wait for him to cool down because while he's heated, nothing can help him. Nothing can help him. The only thing that can help him is quiet. Leave him alone. 
Because anything you tell him, he's going to think you don't understand. He's going to think you're so disconnected. He thinks he's so alone right now that no one understands him. No one will ever understand him. And he's permanently alone. He's permanently in a state of anger. He's permanently upset. And nothing's ever going to change. He doesn't realize that 25 minutes later or two hours later, everything's going to change. But in his state of mind right now, it's permanent. This is, by the way, the state of mind of people that are suicidal. People that are suicidal, they're people that lost it for a moment, for the most part. They didn't necessarily lose it permanently. They lost it for a moment. For a moment, they believe that whatever they're feeling right now is permanent. It's permanent. It's not going away. Sometimes, obviously, it's much longer lasting. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you get to that stage of desperation, that's because you are convinced that whatever horror you're feeling right now, it's never going away. The good news is, more times than not, it does go away. It just takes time. Sometimes a week, sometimes an hour, sometimes 10 years. But it will go away. It will go away. So... You see someone that's angry, if you care about them, if you care about yourself, if you care about your relationship between you and another person, if you care about you and a relationship between you and Hashem Barach, you want to fulfill His will, you have to start looking at things very, very differently. And you have to make sure that you fulfill the mitzvah of being silent. Just like there's a mitzvah, there's a mitzvah of rebuking your brother. Rebuking your brother. You see your brother being a Mechalel Shabbat. You have to tell him, hey, you can't do it. You can't be a Mechalel Shabbat. If you know that if he comes over to your house, he's going to drive to your house on Shabbat, tell him not to come over. Tell him not to come over. Don't tell him, no, no, come over anyway. I want to see you. No, don't come over. If you're going to drive to my house on Shabbat, don't come. I know I haven't seen you in a year, two years, and five years, and ten years. If you're going to violate Shabbat, and you know you're violating Shabbat, you still don't care, don't come. If it's the first time you're trying to do Kiyub, it's a different story. But again, there's a very, very, very thin line of exceptions in this case. You have to be very careful with it. But just like there's a mitzvah of saying something when there's a time to say it, the Gemara in Masechet Yevamot, page 85b, says there's a mitzvah of not saying if you know they're not going to listen. Now, unfortunately, because... Many of the giants that we used to have are no longer with us. We're like a door of Yetumim. We're like a uh, generation of, um, what's Yetumim in English? Um, orphans. We're an orphan generation. Meaning that, uh, unfortunately, people don't have like great leaders that they can call, great leaders that they can write to, great leaders they go meet like they used to. So people, have, a lot of you have become their own rabbi. And they translate stuff their own way. Even rabbis, unfortunately. So a lot of people say, look, I, I, you know, I know this guy is not going to listen to me, so I'm not going to say anything. I know that if I, you know, I see him driving on Shabbat, and uh, if I say to him, not, don't drive on Shabbat, he's not going to listen to me, so I'm just not going to say anything. He's been driving for 20 years. If I tell him, he's still going to drive. So I might as well not say anything. And they think that they're fulfilling a mitzvah. But the Rambam in Ilchot Shubah specifically says, this is not what's meant here. This is not what's meant here. It's a completely wrong mentality. 
what is actually being said is if the mitzvah is the Rabbanan. And you know he's not going to listen. For example, if you see him do Natilat Yadayim the wrong way, and if you tell him to do it the right way, he's not going to listen. Or perhaps he's not doing it at all. He's about to eat bread, and he's not washing his hands. So that's a Rabbanan, it's a rabbinical mitzvah. You know that if you tell him to go do it, he's not going to listen to you, then it's mitzvah not to say anything. Because he's not going to listen to you. But if it's deoraita, meaning if it's a mitzvah from the Torah, it's a mitzvah specifically from Hashem, it's written in the Torah, like Shabbat, like kosher, like Tarat Mishpacha, like the foundation of Judaism, the 613 mitzvot, and you see somebody violating that mitzvah, not only are you obligated to rebuke him, not only, the Rambam says, not only are you obligated to rebuke him, initially you rebuke him uh, privately, and if he doesn't listen privately, after multiple times, you have to publicize that he's a sinner. You have to rebuke him publicly. So what happens for the mitzvah of somebody's malbim berabim that embarrasses another person in public? What about that? Because it says someone embarrasses another person in public has no share of the world to come. The Rambam specifically says that's only pertaining to rabbinical mitzvot. That's only pertaining if you embarrass them publicly for not doing that tilat yadayim, for doing things that are against the rabbis. If he's doing something against God, you have full authorization and obligation, and obligation to publicly embarrass him if he doesn't listen, if he doesn't listen privately. Of course, first go to him privately. First go to the guy, listen, buddy, do me a favor. It's not good for you. Why? It says, Parashat Kitisa, if you violate Shabbat, Hashem's going to kill you, lose your life. You don't want to hear. You tell him once, tell him twice, tell him three times, the guy's laughing in your face. You have to make sure that he knows that he's not allowed to do it. Now, of course, you have to use your wisdom a little bit. You can't start going to war every single time you go to Beknesset you know, with every single person that drives on Shabbat. You have to use your wisdom. But the point being is that the mentality today is very, very warped. The mentality today is very, very wrong where people think that you're not allowed to rebuke people. This couldn't be further from the truth. Just look at the Rambam. Look at the Rambam, look at the Shuhana Aruch, look at the sages and so on. So now, there's a mitzvah to say, there's a mitzvah not to say. But the mitzvah not to say is again, specific, specific when not to say and what not to say. Mitzvah to say is when not to say, when to say. So that's the first thing. Then it says, Don't console your friend, don't console him, while his dead lies before him. Meaning somebody just died. Don't think that you're saying, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to do anything for him. If anything, it may actually make him feel worse. If anything, he may get angry at you. For you thinking it's going to be okay. Because right now, he feels like he just died. If whoever died is really important to him, it's his mother, his father, a sibling, if it's a, a spouse, a child, I mean, so many disasters happening every day. You you think about these things, you see these things, you want to cry. And you think that you're about, hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, it's going to be okay, buddy. I'm with you. I'm suffering with you. Like You think that kind of attitude is going to help you? If anything, he's going to be upset at you and he's going to hate you forever. Why? Because you just pretty much confirmed 
confirmed his belief that he's alone. Because whatever you think you are, you're definitely not in the same mindset as what he needs right now. You're far, far away. And many times this happens between couples. When Hashem and Hashem, one of the couple's parents die. A mother, the, 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 the wife's parents die, or the husband's parents die, or something like that. Hashem and Hashem. I mean, this, this is part of life, unfortunately. Death is very much a part of life. When you're connected to Torah, you could view death as the next chapter. And not necessarily the saddest day in the world. Even though it's sad, it's not the saddest like people portray it as. Because if you believe in the Torah and you believe that life continues just in a different way, after death, it's already a nechama. Uh, it's already makes, uh, makes, uh, makes things uh, uh, more, uh, more easy. So for example, Rav Shach, Rav Shach lost his daughter during his life. His daughter died, and uh, Rabbi uh, Rav Chaim Ozil came to him one time, and he says, uh, "How are you? How are you dealing with your daughter? Losing your daughter? You know, it's a big tikkun." They say in the Gemara, it's, "It's the worst tikkun that a person can get. The worst suffering you can get is losing a child during their life." We learned. We learned uh, yesterday the Yavitz lost six kids during his lifetime. Uh, Rabban Yochanan lost 10. But anyway, a lot of the tzaddikim, also uh, Rav Vadya lost a child too. A couple, a couple during his life. One when he was uh, a baby and one uh, when he was older. Anyway, you see that this high level suffering is experienced by the tzaddikim on a regular basis. Don't think that it was easy for Avram to be Avram. Don't think that it was easy for Yitzchak to be Yitzchak. Don't think it was easy for Yaakov to be Yaakov and don't think it was easy for Moshe Rabbeinu to be Moshe Rabbeinu. Don't think it was easy to be David HaMelech. It's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. Whoever thinks they're in this world for an easy life, they, are, they need more help than anyone else because they're living a wrong life. They just have the wrong head. Wrong mentality. It's not the life. This life is not easy. I'm not saying, I'm not wishing anyone to have a difficult life. But to expect any different is unrealistic. It's very immature. So now, Rav Chaim Oza told Rav Shach, how are you doing? Well, you know, you lost your daughter. So Rav Shach says, you know, Hashem, the Torah helps me. The Torah gives you a fantastic feeling. When you learn it and you connect to it, you get an amazing feeling when you learn Torah. In the beginning it's bitter, it's very difficult to learn Torah. But eventually you get to a point where you can feel the sweetness of Torah and some of the big giants could even have a physical reaction, a physical reaction from the Torah. People don't believe me when I say this, but it's very much real. Anyway, so Rav Shach says, listen, I, uh, I'm okay. I mean, the Torah helps me, but my wife, the Rabbanit, she's having a tough time. Rav Chaim Ozer says to Rav Shach, something that's very simple. Something that Rav Shach knows, but he's just reminding him of it. He says, tell the Rabbanit not to worry. Tchiat HaMetim is around the corner. She's going to see her very soon anyway. Tell the Rabbanit not to worry. The resurrection of the dead that's going to happen after the Mashiach comes is right around the corner. Not to worry. So Rav Shach actually told this to the Rabbanit and the Rabbanit said herself, she goes, that's the only thing that I heard that actually gave me peace, that actually gave me some comfort. 
saying it's going to be okay, saying, oh, she's in a good place, saying everything you could possibly say meant nothing. But saying, ah, I'm going to see her soon because the resurrection of the dead is going to come true. What Hashem promised us in the Torah is going to come true. I'm going to see my daughter again. Give me comfort. So you have to understand that when you're dealing with people that have a big loss, when your spouse has a big loss, you can't think about, ah, I didn't really care about her father. Ah, I didn't care about her mother. Ah, I didn't care about his father or his mother or his brother. I hated him anyway. You can't think like that. You can't think like that and expect a good marriage. You have to suffer with them. You have to look at it from their perspective. And if you can't, try your best. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Like you have to empathize. Don't be a beast. Don't be a cow. Be a human being. That has feelings that understand, okay, maybe I don't feel the same way about our father like she feels about our father. Maybe I don't feel the same about his mother as he feels about his mother. But I'm in pain when he's in pain. I'm not in pain because of his mother. I'm in pain because he's in pain. If you're not in pain when your wife's in pain, you have to, you have to question why you're even married, Bechlam. I'm not an advocate of divorce, but there's something wrong with you. There's something seriously wrong. If your wife is in pain and you're not in pain, there's something wrong with you. If your husband's in pain, and you don't care, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Your mind is not, is not there. Your mind is somewhere else. Maybe it's in Tahiti. Maybe it's in Bali. Maybe it's in Las Vegas. It's not, it's not home. It's not here. It's not on this planet. It's not here. If someone you're supposed to be a soulmate with is in pain, and you just don't care, there's something wrong with you. Unfortunately, you find out in life that a lot of those so-called friends that you thought you have, they're not in pain when you're in pain. Where are they? They're gone. When you're in pain, they're like, hey, let us know when you're not in pain anymore. We're going to a vacation. Many times I hear, yeah, you know what? I have this friend over my house. And yo, friend's 15, 20 years, but you know, he just lost his dad. Oh, you know, he just lost his girl. Oh, you know, he just lost somebody. And he's really depressing me. He's really depressing me. So I think I'm just going to kick him out of the house. I'm going to tell him to move out. I'm like, what? Like, this is your friend? This is just, what kind of friend are you? Kind of, you know, at the moment, the only time that your friendship is of any value is at a time of loss, at a time of, of suffering. Not when everything is great. That's what I'm telling you. Real friends, they don't exist. They don't exist. And if they do... Maybe you'll finish your life with one. Maybe. You ask any old man, how many friends you have, I'll laugh at you first of all, for thinking that's even true and possible to have friends. Any old man. All of us youngsters think it's still possible. We're all still optimistic. We're all still optimistic that we actually have a friend or that we could actually get a friend. I'm telling you, in reality, every old man I've ever asked this question laughed at me. Like, friend? Eh, I have a guy I know for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Well, you're not friends? Yeah. 50 years, you're friends. Yeah, you're friends. We talk. It's different. Why? When something's on the line, friendship's on the line sometimes. It's just a reality of life. It's a reality of life. 
Who's your friend? Your spouse. Even your kids eventually are not going to be your friends. Why? They have their own spouse to be friends with. Your parents have their own life. Everybody everybody has their own life at some point. Everybody has to move on at some point. I'm sorry to be the bearer of reality news. This is life. Parents think that their kids are going to stay inside the womb forever. And the parents are not always going to be there. Life is not quite that. It's just not. So, for all of those that are getting a shock of their life, this is life. Welcome. So when someone has a... Huh? Think a positive note into the world. Now, so when someone has a loss, you have to be able to empathize, you have to understand that even the suffering that they're experiencing, believe it or not, according to the Torah, Rav says, and also in Levavot says, that their suffering for this loss is good for them and you shouldn't even try to temper it. You shouldn't even try to make them feel good too much. Why? Their suffering is good for them. It's good for them for the sake of kaparat avonot. It's also good for them for the sake of removing any ego they had. Because usually the main and only way to remove ego, to remove arrogance, is with loss. Why? It's a reality check. You're not so great. You're not so wonderful. You know... A lot of people are very, very immodest in their behavior because they're proud of their beautiful body. Men, women, there are especially people that are young, athletic. For some reason or another, they believe that because they have a physically fit body, the whole world needs to know about it. But not only know about it, need to know about it all the time, in the afternoon, in the morning, at night, on the internet, on TV, in every way, shape, or form, they want to make sure that the whole world knows that they have a nice body. Now, the Torah in Gemara Masichet Shabbat teaches us something extraordinary. It says that when someone dies, their body becomes mukze. Their body is not even something that you're allowed to touch on Shabbat. Not even allowed to touch it on Shabbat. Their body is considered a waste. Nothing. The soul is the valuable part. The body is nothing. Not even allowed to touch it. So, for all of those that are in a religious world, at least, that are spending a little too much time in front of the mirror to make sure that their hair is just perfect, and their tie is just perfect, and their wig is just perfect, and all these things are just perfect, just realize, eventually you're going to be mukte. Eventually that body you're spending so much time on, it's going to be a waste. I'm not telling you to be ugly, I'm not telling you to take care of yourself, but come on, enough's enough. This brings me to the point of people that are literally willing to lose their olamaba for the simple show and simple attention that they get. As you all know, we've talked about the whole wig situation many times. The choban that we have in the religious world today is this disaster of pe'anochrit, these wigs that have been 
somehow infiltrated the religious Jewish world where almost every single Jewish woman that's religious has a wig on. And the overwhelming majority of them have a wig that's made from real hair. Now we've talked about it many times that the source of this real hair comes from India. We're not going to repeat the same thing. But the good news is, is that now we have the backing of some of the G'dolei Ador, or really all of the G'dolei Ador. So Rav Moshe Sternbach, one of the G'dolei Ador, uh, wrote a letter forbidding, forbidding all wigs. Now he's Ashkenazi, he's not a uh, Sephardic, so it's for people I brought up some Sephardic scheme in the past, and like, ah, yeah, it's Sephardic, they always didn't like it, they always did, everybody has an excuse. So now you have the Gdolado in Yerushalayim, and chief rabbi here, and you're talking about a giant among giants. It's saying, it doesn't matter if you're Ashkenazi, it doesn't matter if you're Sephardi, doesn't matter anything. We cannot rely on Goim to tell us whether the hair came from Abu Dazara or not. Therefore, it's not allowed. It's completely forbidden. So you have a letter from him. Anyone who wants a letter, let me know. I'll give you a copy of the letter. Now, if that wasn't enough, if you don't want to hold by him, then you go with Rav Kanievsky. Rav Kanievsky, it doesn't get bigger than that. There's no one bigger than that left. And Rav Kanievsky didn't just sign a letter saying that the real wigs are not allowed, but he actually started doing the same thing that Rav Yashiv did and getting women to burn the hair, burn the wigs. And here's a picture of him burning some wigs just a few weeks ago. Taking these real hair wigs, each one of them worth thousands of dollars, and you have Rav Kanievsky actually took time out of learning Torah. This is a person that literally learns 21, 22 hours a day. Only thing he cares about in this world is Torah. He stopped learning Torah to go burn some wings. Anyone that doesn't understand, I'm sorry for you that you don't understand, anyone that understands the value of Torah understands that Rav Kanievsky, the Gdolador, stopping his Torah to take time to go burn some wigs. I mean, they could easily show him a picture of the wigs being burned. He doesn't have to necessarily attend. He says this is a mitzvah from the Torah to actually see idol worship being burned. Now we have also Rav Chaim Alevi Vosnel, also one of the Gedolei Rav Rosenberg, Rav Yehuda Saliman, Rav Shimon Ba'adani, Rav Moshe Mordechai Kal, all also signed letter, not allowed to wear wigs. It's not finished. More. Rav Oyerbach wrote, "Amatzav koev meod meod shari lifnei arba'is rishana kvar ayut tzrichim laazov et apeot legamre mimechashash avodah zara tzrich lakum belaasot maase." Rav Oyerbach says, "This is extremely painful because already 14 years ago, meaning at the time Rav Yashiv alava shalom." told the world, these wigs have Abu Dazarai in them. You can't verify if it's Abu Dazarai or not. You can't. So Rav Oyobach says, already 14 years ago, we should have listened to Rav Yashiv and left all of these, abandoned all of these wigs completely and not allow this Abu Dazarai to enter the Jewish world, to completely abandon it. 
It's time to get up and do something. Rav Azriel Oyervach. כל הפעות כיום אין בחשש עבודה זרה. הגיע הזמן שבנות ישראל יעזבו אותן. He says all of the weeks today, all of the weeks today, are a possibility of having source of עבודה זרה. It's time that the women of Israel left them, abandoned them, and that's it. What does he mean by all of the wigs? All of the wigs actually was a chidush to me, was that they're also referring to synthetic wigs too. It's now I, all this whole time, have been fighting it for the last couple of years, Baruch Hashem. I've been talking about wigs made from real hair. And I thought that wigs from synthetic... I thought they were not necessarily okay, but if there's ever a permission to wear a wig, that would be it. I never told anybody it's allowed to wear a synthetic wig. But if there's ever a permission to wear a wig, the only wig that would ever be allowed would be a synthetic wig that's very, very short. But the Gdolei Ador is saying now, no, 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 it's also the synthetic wigs too. And the reason why is further research confirmed that at least 1 to 3% of every single synthetic wig actually has real hair in it. Every single synthetic wig, even though the majority of it is not real, every single synthetic wig has some real hair in it. Whether it's fulfill, whether it's fulfill, whether it's whatever the reason is, point is, they have some real hair. And even if there's a single hair, a single real hair in a wig that comes from Avodah Zarah, Yes, the whole thing has to be thrown out because you, you don't know which hair it is. Once you don't know, the whole thing has to be destroyed. Agaon Agadol Rav Sharid Rosenberg. Also, Rav Moshe Mordechai, Rav Rosenblatt, Rav Tzion Mutsafi, Rav Nathan Ben Sanyor, Rav Eliyahu Pozen. All of these giant poskim wrote a letter and they're saying this is not a time to doubt anything. This is not a time because a lot of people when the first letter came out that only a handful of giants signed a letter, some people said, no, this is a forged signature. This is not real. Maybe they don't mean it. Maybe they don't understand. Maybe they're old. Maybe they're this. This they specifically said, this is not a time to doubt anything. We all agree it's not allowed to wear wigs. It's time to abandon them. That's it. Enough. Enough with the shtuyot. Enough. Doesn't matter if you're Ashkenazi, doesn't matter if you're Sephardi, doesn't matter anything. And the reason why is because now these names are added to the list. What list? A list of 117 for scheme throughout history that have forbidden wigs for every other reason, not just Abu Dazarah. For just general, they're not allowing wigs overall because of modesty issues. You have 117 poskim already before this, didn't allow it. Now you have more. The list of people of poskim, giants, that did not allow wigs continues to grow, and the ones that are allowing them continue to disappear. So for anyone that's still continuing to use the excuse, no, but it's difficult, no, but it's this, but it's that, well, you have this week's parasha. And this week's parasha, you learn something extraordinary. You learn that Rivka, Rivka was also beautiful. How do we know she was beautiful? 
It says in chapter 26, verse 7. So at the end of verse 7, it specifically says, Rivka, the wife of, of, uh, of Yitzchak, she's beautiful. Why is this important? Why is it important to know that Rivka was beautiful? Why? Because in last week's parasha, we also learned that as soon as she saw her future husband, what did she do? So it says, as soon as she found out that it's Yitzchak, it's is a future husband, that's who is down the road. What did she do? She immediately covered herself. So as beautiful as Rivka Imenu was, as beautiful as she was, she covered herself. Now, I read a research earlier about milk. About milk. And there's different types of milks and how they prepare milk. Baruch Hashem today, milk is a... Uh, much cheaper than it used to be, much easier to get. And there's different ways of making milk. Different ways of making milk, pasteurizing it, and so on and so forth. So, one of the ways that they make milk is homogenized milk. Homogenized milk. Now this type of process of making milk is the most beneficial for the producers and the consumers, as far as financials are concerned. Not necessarily health-wise. Financially, convenience-wise, it's the best process. It's the best process. According to this. But there was research done in the 1980s that said or published in the 1980s, that between the 1960s and the 1980s, they said, they looked at the process of homogenizing milk, and they said, and they confirmed, scientists confirmed, that it's not healthy. It brings disease, it's not good, you shouldn't do it, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Right? Only a few years later, a few years later, still in the 80s, a new research team came out and said, hey, by the way, Everything you said about it being not healthy is false. Your research, bupkis. It's nonsense. There's nothing confirmed to be anything wrong with homogenizing milk. It's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. We're not saying it's extra healthy, but it's definitely not what you said of it being unhealthy. This is already 30-year-old research. But they confirmed that whatever negative news came out is fake news. But yet, 30 years later, this process is still unpopular. This process is still rare. Homogenizing milk still is not the leading process, even though it's more convenient for the consumer and the producer to do it this way. It's still not common. Why is it not common? Because the consumer and the producer say, 
Listen, someone said a while ago that it could be bad. Now even though they proved that it's wrong, why take the chance? This is their language. Even though it was proven that it's okay, why take the chance? Somebody said it's not good. So now for 30 years we're listening to some scientist and we're not drinking milk that's made this way because somebody made a wrong report that was confirmed wrong, but maybe he's right. Maybe he's right, so we're not drinking this milk. For 30 years we're listening to a report that was confirmed wrong because maybe it's right. But yet, we have 117 Gdole Adol, the biggest giants in history, and now you have another 10. You have nearly 130 of the biggest giants in the history of Am Yisrael confirming right. It's not allowed to wear a wig, but now we're going to rely on the five that said it's okay. We're not taking a risk with milk, but we're taking a risk with Olama Ba Avodah With bringing Avodah to our Olama Ba. Milk, we're not willing to drink. We're not willing to drink the milk. You understand what's happening here? We're not willing to drink milk. Milk. We're not willing to drink because maybe we're going to get sick. Maybe we're going to get sick because somebody said 30 years ago and he was wrong and he admitted he was wrong. Maybe we're going to get wrong. Maybe we're going to get sick from the milk. We're not drinking it because of that. But the 130 per scheme that said, no, 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 for sure, it's not allowed to wear wig. Whether it's modesty or it's Abu Dazra or it's a combination of both. It's not allowed to do it, but now we're taking the risk. Now we're comfortable. Look at my wig, how wig it, how big it is, how nice it is. What happened to us? What happened to us? Now, isn't it bringing Abu Dazra into the Beit Knesset and you're davening next to it? Isn't that a. It's Abu on their head, unfortunately. It's Abu Dazra on their head. And what's the root of the problem? The root of the problem is also in this week's parasha. And this week's parasha, when Yaakov Avinu comes to Yitzchak and pretends to be Esav for a moment, Yitzchak says, kol kol Yaakov, Now I gave you guys a chidush already that this is also where you can understand that the missionaries sound like they are Jews. But this is also a chidush from Rabbi Ephraim where he says, Akol kol Yaakov is also referring to the fake rabbis at the end of days. And the reason why is because the word Akol is spelled differently than Kol. Meaning, there's the word voice is twice. It's mentioned twice. The voice of Yaakov uh, is, uh, uh, is, is, is mentioned twice. This word is mentioned twice. But the spelling is two different ways. And the reason why is because the word hakol also spells out, it's spelled out in a way where it says hekel, meaning lenient. So he says that the call of Yaakov, the call of Yaakov is bringing the leniencies. But really it's Masay Esav, it's Yadeh Esav. All these rabbis that are constantly looking for leniencies, they're constantly telling people, no, it's okay, wear the wig. Ah, it's not Avodah Zarah. Nah, it's modest. Nah, look at the rabbinit. Look at my rabbinit. She's wearing it. Look at this. Everyone says, look, the rabbi's wife is wearing it. The rabbi's wife is wearing it. Not my husband, my wife, but some rabbi's wife is wearing a uh, wig. So it's allowed. But the Gemara in Yerushalmi specifically says you're not allowed to learn 
for Maase Adam. You're not allowed to learn Torah or Alachot or what's allowed, what's not allowed by looking at another person, especially the rabbi. You know, you don't learn Alachot based on what he does. You learn Alachot from books. You learn Alachot from the Chachamin. You don't learn Alachot by looking at the rabbi. You see his wife is wearing a mini skirt, therefore it's allowed. You're seeing his wife wearing a wig that reaches the floor and is sweeping the streets, so we're saving money on taxes, and that therefore it's allowed. No, you don't learn halachot. You learn halachot from poskim. You learn halachot from books, from the Torah. You don't learn halachot from people and how they behave. So the problem is that today you have a lot of leniencies, a lot of lenient rabbis, and leniency is because of money. They're all worried about donations, and usually the ones with the longest wigs also have the biggest checkbooks. So now, this disaster has to be stopped already. It has to be stopped. It's enough. Enough is enough. You have more than enough proofs that it's not allowed to wear a wig. You have more than enough proofs to show that Gdoleador agree. Enough. Enough. Take it. Throw it in the garbage. Burn it. Do whatever you want. Just don't put it on your head. Why? What are you going to do showing up to Shamaim and they tell you, by the way, Yet 130 poskim, 130 poskim telling you you're not allowed to wear a wig for countless reasons. But you showed up here to Olamaba with your Avodah Zarah on your head, expecting us to give you Ganedin. Why? Because you relied on two or three rabbis that didn't even say that what you're doing is allowed anyway. They said something else is allowed. Even what they said is allowed is not what you're doing anyway. You relied on two verses 127? How? Milk, milk, milk. You're not drinking because someone said maybe it's not good. 30 years ago. And he was proven wrong. But the wig with the Abu Dazara on it, he said it's okay. This is Mamash, this is Mamash Aisav. This is Mamash Kolach. This is, the, this is Satan himself. The reason why in the Torah it says that Hashem got really upset at Am Yisrael Really, really upset Am Yisrael for the Abu Dazarah. But he didn't show how upset he really got about the Abu Dazarah of the Egel, of the golden calf, until after Korach. After Korach. Why? Abu Dazarah is worse than what happened with Korach. Korach was him and 250 other rabbis, went against Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not as bad as thousands of people going and worshipping an idol. They just want a new rabbi. They're wrong, but the point is, they're changing rabbis. Why is Hashem really upset after Korach about the Avodah Zarah? What does that one thing have to do with the other? Hashem told them, when you wanted to go against Moshe Rabbeinu, that speaks to me face to face, speaks to me face to face, you wanted to go against him. You wanted to... You doubted Moshe Rabbeinu. You doubted Moshe Rabbeinu. The one that speaks to me face to face. You doubted him. Out of all the people in the world, you could have doubted everyone else. You doubted Moshe Rabbeinu. You wanted to replace him with Korah. Because Korah had a big bank account. was very, very good at speaking. Tamit Chacham. Everything looked good. As soon as Korah came, you're like, ah, maybe Moshe is not so good. Maybe this, maybe that. You started asking questions you never asked before. All of a sudden, all the shurim he gave you didn't matter anymore. All of a sudden, the CDs didn't work. All of a sudden, the books didn't matter. 
Nothing matters. Why? Because Koach is in the picture. Okay, no problem. No problem. You had another rabbi in the picture. You were doubting Moshe Rabbeinu. No problem. But how come? How come you didn't ask those same questions? How come you didn't have those same doubts? How come you didn't think about it so much and so much depth when they brought the Avodah Zarah? Why is it that as soon as the, the Egil, the Egil Azav, the golden calf showed up, immediately you said, oh, that's God. Why didn't you doubt it? Why didn't you fight it? Why didn't you say, maybe it's not, maybe it's yes. You doubted Moshe Rabbeinu. Why didn't you doubt the golden calf? At least just the same. At least just the same. This brought an additional kitrug on Am Yisrael. You're doubting the milk company. You're not drinking their milk for 30 years. You're not drinking their milk because somebody made a wrong report 30 years ago. But 130 per scheme that say you're not allowed, no, it's okay. I have my rabbi. He tells me the right thing to do. The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esau, of any rabbi, any person, anyone that says that you're allowed to wear a wig. I don't care any rabbi that says you're allowed to wear a wig, it's 100% asu. He's 100% wrong. Why? Maybe he doesn't understand, maybe he doesn't see, maybe he's wicked, maybe he's a liar, maybe he's nagua, maybe he's in it. I don't know, I don't care. It's not allowed. Why? You have enough, it's not my opinion. You have 130 biggest poskim in history say so. And they're not saying it lightly. They're not saying it, ah, you know what, but maybe there's a leniency. There's no leniency. There's no leniency. Not saying, ah, listen, if you wear it, it's okay. No. Somebody went to Rabbi Vadya, Zechat Tzadik Livracha, told him, listen, for the Rav, you have a family member that wears a wig. He says, yes, there's a place in Geinom for her too. Even though he's not, even though he has family, oh, doesn't make a difference. Torah is Torah. Torah is Torah. You can't make exceptions every five minutes. Enough. So this brings, that's more with the makom. That has to do with our relationship with Hashem Barach. It's time for us to actually start taking it seriously. Don't question a person that made a vow at the time he actually makes the vow. Sometimes a person can get so upset, he says, from now on, I'm not going to do something. I'm not going to go to Beknesset. I'm not going to whatever. Don't be one of these people, but say, yeah, but you only mean you're not going to Beknesset, this Beknesset, right? Or you're not going to Beknesset during the week. Don't ask him any questions about a Nedel. Because first of all, if you make a nedel, you're a little crazy anyway. If you make a nedel, you're crazy. Why? For what? The Torah says don't make it. Why are you making a nedel? So if you're making a nedel, you're already crazy. It means you're, you're upset about something. You're not really all there. There's something wrong. You're not supposed to be making nedarim. Everybody gets very excited about atarat nedarim they do once a year right before the holy holidays. Well, how many nedarim did you make? Why are you making so many nedarim? Are you crazy? If you're making so many nedarim, you're patu from all the mitzvot, you're crazy, you have to go to a mental institution. It tells you, if you don't fulfill a nedar, they're going to kill your children. Why are you making nedarim? Gemara says it. Gemara says, someone doesn't fulfill his nedarim, they kill their spouse and children. Why are you making nedarim? Why are you making vows like this? You have to be careful what you say. So now, you have somebody that went crazy a little bit and started to make a nedar. 
says, don't ask him any questions. Let him just cool off. Let him just, whatever he's doing, contain it. Don't say anything. Don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. Why? Because if you tell me, yeah, but you don't mean it for this Bikneset, what is he going to say? No, you know what? Dafka this Bikneset, I'm not going to come to anymore. I don't even mean just this Bikneset. I'm not going to go to any Bikneset ever again. Now go find an etel on this. Now go find somebody to take him out of this nether. Now go find somebody to get him out of this trouble that he got himself into. Why? You got him into the trouble. So now this is a problem. Why is this a problem? Because a lot of us like to catch people when their pants are down, if you will. Meaning, we love to catch people when they're lying to us. We love it. Oh, it's like a pleasure. It's like almost like you have ganeder and you have catching people when they're lying to you. People love to catch people when they're lying to you. The problem with that mentality is that even though them lying is a sin against the Torah, you, knowing that they're going to lie to you and allowing them to lie and in essence encouraging them to lie and enabling them to lie, you're also going to get punished for it. What is this like? The Chafetz Chaim, Allah Shalom, he uh, used to go from place to place to sell his books. And he would go away for an extended period of time. Six months he's on the road, selling his books from town to town. He gets to a new town. It gets late. He got uh, delayed. It's already late Friday afternoon. He runs into the community. He goes to the rabbi. He says, uh, you know, it's Shabbat. It's almost coming in. So he gives him whatever money he has, all the money he has. He goes, please hold it for me. In those days, people were trustworthy. You would give the balabite your money. And he would give it back to you. He'd put it in a safe and he would give it back to you when you leave. When you went to a hotel, when you went to stay by someone and so on. So he gives the, the, the rabbi, the rabbi of the kilah, he gives him all of his money. Now six months worth of money, six months parnasah. His family at home is waiting for this parnasah. Letters he sends his wife is, how's the cow doing? Not, uh, how's, the, uh, how's the cow doing? The cow is the parnasah. Why? Because he's selling books. He has to bring the Panasa home. So now six months worth of money, six months of Panasa, he just gave it to this rabbi. But since it's moments before Shabbat, there's no time to make him sign an agreement. So he says Shabbat Shalom, gives him the money, prays, Motzei Shabbat, it's time for him to leave. The Chafetz Chaim packs up and leaves without the money. Without the money. So the rabbi... It's very excited. Gdolador came by. Wow, what a great Shabbat. But he starts thinking, oh, wait a minute. I forgot the money with me. He forgot, I forgot to give him the money. He, do, 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 do. he starts running in the street, starts running, 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 catches up to the Chafetz Chaim. You took your shoes, you took your donkey, you took your, dish, you took your books, took everything. You remember something else? You remember the money? Or you forgot the money? Chafetz Chaim says, well, you think I forgot the money? How can you forget about six months worth of salary? I didn't forget about the money. Because once you, ask, once you get the money, he goes, because I didn't have enough time to sign an agreement with you. You took ownership of the money. You took, you borrowed, you, you had possession of the money. And technically, I gave you the ability to lie. Because now is your work, because there's no agreement that testifies that you actually took the money. If I asked you for the money and you said, no, I didn't take the money. Technically, I can't prove it, but it doesn't really make a difference. You are now able to lie. And that one lie, that one lie that you now, and I enabled you to make, that one lie I enabled you to make by not signing an agreement, is 
could actually create an angel big enough to destroy your entire city. So why should I put you in a position where you have to lie? So that's why I said, you know what? It's better that I lose six months worth of salary than put you in a position where you have to fight your Yetzirah and lie once. We are excited to find someone lying to us. Ah, I knew you were lying. Ha, ah, you liar. I caught you. You were there on Tuesday, weren't you? Yeah, you ate. You didn't eat. Ah, we love to catch people lying. Oh, you said you didn't eat, but you ate. I see the ketchup on your cheek. I see it. Ah, you ate. We love to catch people you lie. The reality of it is, Satan and Shemaim also loves to catch people lying. He says, oh, you like catch people lying? Let me show you how I catch people lying. Don't catch people lying. You know they're going to lie to you? Don't say anything. Don't put them in a situation to lie. Why? Because now you become Machtia Rabim. If you know they're going to lie to you, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't be, become a partner. Don't enable them to lie to you. You know they're going to lie? Don't ask. Don't ask. Don't ask the question. No need. Rav Nisimi again says sometimes the wives, the wives ask their husbands uh, questions. They know they're going to lie. Sometimes, I don't know, husbands make stupid lies. They make stupid lies. Husbands don't lie about big things. Husbands lie about stupid things. Like, where were you? How come it took you so long to get home? In reality, he was just talking with the guys. He was talking with the guys for an extra hour. What did he say? Ah, it was traffic. Now, she knows there wasn't traffic. She saw on the news there's no traffic. But the husband's not going to say, I hung out with the guys. I had a beer with the guys. He's not going to say. He's going to lie to her. She knows he's a liar. She's still going to ask him. Why? Let me see me again. I love Hashem. said, why are, you, why are you asking him to lie? You know he's going to lie. Why? If, he, if, he, if, if, he doesn't, if you don't ask him, you're going to die? If you're going to die, Chavak Kaddish is going to pick you up anyway. It's not a problem. So the key is, people need to understand, is that sometimes people say things that they don't mean, and it's terrible. There's a significant value to it. So if someone is making a neder, someone is foolish enough to make a neder, don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. Don't put them in a position where they have to elaborate and, and put themselves in a much more difficult uh, for them to, uh, you know, to get out of it. The other thing is also, is that sometimes, sometimes people are, don't know how to speak, they don't know how to communicate. So, they want to make a certain promise, they want to do a certain thing, and they forget about the world at large. They forget about the world around them. So for example, sometimes people, they'll put you on a spot. So for example, they will, uh, you know, take your keys. Let's say you went to Beknesset and you left your keys on a table. And they take your keys like, hey, I'm borrowing your car, okay? Like they put you, and they say it out loud in front of everyone. Because they know that maybe you're going to be at the Beknesset for an hour, two hours. You don't really need your car right now to drive yourself. So they put you on the spot. Say, hey, listen, I'm borrowing your car for an hour, okay? I'll be back. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to put the person on the spot. Why? Because you're not asking him. You're telling him. You actually put him in a situation where if he says no, he looks like a bad person. He looks like the bad guy. He looks stingy. He looks bad. He looks evil. He looks terrible. You are now embarrassing this person. 
this is a very, very bad character trait. Or sometimes you have somebody come into your house, you know, to pick you up or whatever. They come into your house, they start, they see food on the table, they start eating it. Oh, did you want this? They're already eating the, the same half a sandwich. Oh, you wanted this? Why are you putting the guy in a spot? Why are you putting him on a spot? Maybe that's his only food. You know, you're not allowed to just appear at somebody's house and expect them to feed you. There's actually a very famous, uh, very famous story in the Gemara, Masechet Ta'anit. Masechet Ta'anit, Abba had some visitors. They were actually, came to visit him because they were, they needed him to pray for rain. They needed him to pray for rain. And they uh, went to him, they saw him at work. They say, hey, hello, Kvodarav. He didn't respond to them. Later on, they asked him, ah, Kvodarav, how come you didn't respond to us? He said, because I'm working. And the person that I'm working for, he's paying me to work, not to say hello to you. If I said hello to you, it's gezel. It's like I'm considered like I'm stealing those 5, 10, 15 seconds from him that he's paying me for. He's paying me for the day. Me saying hello to you, me saying the text messages, me going on my Facebook me going for smoke cigarette breaks, I'm stealing from the boss that's paying me for the day. You're not allowed to get paid for stuff that you're not getting paid for. Meaning if you're working for somebody and he's paying you for the day, he's paying you hourly, he's paying you whatever amount of money hourly, and you go outside and it's not an acceptable behavior, it's not something that the boss already said it's allowed. Like some companies allow you to have two or three cigarette breaks a day if you're a smoker. Or they allow you to, you know, play with your phone for, I don't know, five, ten minutes a day because everybody's doing it. Or whatever the case is, it has more freedom in a company, that's fine. But if you have one of these bosses or one of these companies that expects you to work when they're paying you to work, and instead of working, you're on your Facebook profile, instead of working, you are smoking cigarettes, you're doing all these different things, you're stealing. You're stealing. Your, your salary is stolen, it's not earned, it's stolen. You're going to show up at Gan Eden. I kept Shabbat. I did Filin. I did this. I did this. You can't. Do not enter. Why? You're a thief. No thief can ever enter Gan Eden. Thief can enter Gan Eden. They have to come back in the Gilgul. Return the money. So people need to understand these things. Now, so when you actually go to somebody's house, you can't just start taking their stuff assuming it's okay. So these visitors came to Abba Chilkia's house and Abba Chilkia and his wife, his wife came outside. All beautiful, welcoming him. They ask for the Rav, how come your wife, for the Rav, your big rabbi, how come your wife came outside all dressed up and everything else? He says, because my wife doesn't want me to look at any other woman. And we have some neighbors, we have some neighbors here, they also have wives, there's also women. She wants to make sure that she's the only woman I look at. This is a Tana. This is a Tana that was able to revive the dead. Even in his day, 2,000 years ago, they knew what we need to know today. That if the wife does not take care of herself for a husband to look beautiful but yet modest, the husband's eyes are going to travel somewhere else. So when, when, uh, when different women dress beautiful for Carlos and Jose in the supermarket, but they're wearing their pajamas at home, they're doing everything wrong. It's actually supposed to be the opposite. It's supposed to be the opposite. Many women don't know how to dress to, for their husbands. They think that when their husbands came to the house, they could see them in their pajamas, they could see them in their robe, like they just woke up from a six-month nap. 
But when they go into the supermarket to pick, to pick up some milk, that's not homogenized because it's bad research, then the reality is they dress up with the dress, $35,000 dress. This is wrong mentality. Wrong mentality. So Abba Chilke already told us, my wife, him, Tana, Tana Kadosh says, my wife doesn't want me to have my eyes look at any of the women. And she's right. So then they sit down and eat, but they didn't invite the guests to eat. They didn't invite the guests to eat. It was him and his wife and his two kids. So they asked him for the Rav. Later on, they asked all these questions. Call the Rav, how come you didn't invite us to eat? He says, I don't know you, and I don't have food for you. I don't have food. I, don't, I didn't have enough food for you. I had enough for me and my family. Meaning that just because someone's a guest shows up at your house, doesn't mean you need to feed them. And you as a guest, if you're ever going to be a guest at somebody's house, you have to be responsible and you have to make sure that they can actually feed you. You can't just assume that because you live in America or you live in Israel, you live in some country and the house looks fancy and the house looks big and the car looks expensive and all of the things look a certain way, doesn't necessarily mean they can afford to feed you. A lot of people love to be hosted for Shabbat, for holidays at different people's houses because they don't want to cook themselves. And they like to be hosted. The reality of it is, the reality of it is that if you have a place to eat, then they're not even getting a mitzvah for hosting you, first of all. Second of all, you should bring something to the table. You should bring some food. You should pay for something. You should do something. You can't just expect people to just pay for you for the rest of their life. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a normal behavior. People just come to people's houses and stay there for a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time for free, thinking, ah, whatever, he has a room, he's not using the room, so so what that I'm using the room? Well, you're, you know, you're costing money for being in that room. There's toilet paper, there's soap, there's brushes, there's, there's a bunch of, there's a cost for hosting you. If it didn't cost anything, then everybody would live in this room for free. There's a lot, there's cost money. So people have to understand that they have to empathize, they have to understand... What would I do? Would I host them for three weeks for free? If they could do it, Ashav, mitzvah, good job for you. Chazakubah for doing it. But don't assume that people could just pay for you forever. At least offer. It's good, it's good, it's a good character trait to have. Now, the problem is that people assume a lot of things. And one of the worst types of assumptions is that they assume they assume that other people know what they're talking about. They assume that other people will agree to, with them, and so on. So there's a famous story with Rabbi Freifield that uh, one of his students came to him and says, Kvod Arav, I, uh, I want to, uh, I'm going to join the Daf Yomi, the Daf Yomi class that uh, they're having in a community. I'm going to join the Daf Yomi class. And the rabbi says, okay. Nine months pass. A student comes back to, rab, to the rav. And he says, Kvod rav, I can't do it. This stuff you me thing is too much for me. I can't do it. And all of a sudden, the rabbi starts tearing into him. And he says, I knew it's a bad idea. From day one, I knew it's a bad idea. Why did you even think that a yeshiva bachur like you has time for daf yomi? It's definitely going to take your mind away from what you're supposed to be learning. Who gave you the idea that it's okay for you to join this extra class, this extra curriculum, this extra study? You have a lot of other things to study. He says, wait, but I came to you. 
I came to you and I asked you. Asked, the rabbi says. You didn't ask. You told me you're joining the dafyumi. You told me you're so excited that you're joining. It wasn't, you weren't asking me if I agreed or not. Many times I have students that tell me a lot of stuff. They tell me, and I, they tell me, okay, so you're going to do it, you're going to do it. One time I had a guy told me, listen, I'm joining, the, I'm leaving uh, I'm leaving work. He was uh, in business. And uh, I'm leaving work, I'm joining the kolel. I said, oh, okay. You know, I don't think it's a good idea, but okay. He didn't really like that I said it's not a good idea, but he did it anyway. And he had a lot of difficulties, a lot of difficulties. And the problem is that if he would have listened, he would have had less difficulties and he still would have attained success in Torah and in business. The problem is that when he came to me, this happened more than once, he wasn't asking. He wasn't asking for my opinion. He was just telling me, joining a kolal. Sometimes I have people sending me a picture of their food. And they say, listen, this doesn't have, it's already an open pack, it's finished food, it's already eaten. It doesn't have a kosher sign on it. Is that okay? Well, you were supposed to ask the question before you ate it, not after you ate it. So the point is that people sometimes, they like to just assume, assume that you're going to agree. This is the, the nature, this is the nature of, of Esav, really. This is the nature of Esav. One time, a guy is looking for a leniency. He's looking for a leniency. He's got two, two you know, two guys in a, in a uh, shul, and uh, they're arguing, are you allowed to smoke in shul or not? One guy wants to smoke a cigarette in shul. The guy says, no, I don't think you're allowed. I don't think you're allowed to smoke a cigarette in shul. Because you're allowed, you're allowed. It's okay. Rabbi's going to let it go. He goes, no, you're not allowed to smoke in shul. You're not allowed to smoke a cigarette in shul. He goes, okay, let me show you. I'll ask the rabbi. So guy A goes to the rabbi. He goes, Kvod Rav, am I allowed to smoke a cigarette in shul? Rabbi says, absolutely not. Chas v'shalom. It's bet It's a mini bet mikdash You're not allowed to smoke in shul. So he comes back to the other guy. He says, look, I told you. Just ask the rabbi. I asked him, are you allowed to smoke in shul? He said, absolutely not. He goes, yes, yeah, because you don't know how to ask a question. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, watch. He goes to the rabbi. He goes, hey, Kvod Rav, when I'm smoking, when I'm smoking, can I pray while I smoke? Can I pray while I smoke? The rabbi says, of course, even while, look Hashem, your nation, even while they smoke, they think about you. You understand? People that are looking for leniencies, they're going to find excuses, they're going to find ways, they're going to find this. Why? It's a mini Esav inside us. It's mamasha mini Esav inside us. Last but not least, says, do not attempt to see him at the time of de- his degradation. Meaning when somebody falls, somebody has a moment of weakness. Someone has a moment of weakness, they just made a big sin. They, they just uh, committed adultery, they just went with a married woman, they just, uh, whatever, they did some type of awful, horrible sin. Don't be one of these people that says, hey, I told you, show you a shah, merusha, don't be one of those people. He's already, if he, I mean, if he's a human being, if he's not completely a sub, he feels bad. And try to bring him up. Try to bring him up. Don't tell the whole world, they're all Reshaim and you're the only uh, Avram Avinu. 
Of course, we have to get people to do tshuva. Of course, we got to get people to realize that they're making mistakes. Of course, I'm not saying not. But there's a way. There's a way to do it. And if you do it the wrong way, unfortunately, it's not only not going to help him, but you're actually going to distance him even further. You're going to make him feel even worse about himself. Because the reality of it is, what Hashem asks us to do is not so much. It's not so much at all. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 12, So, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the nation, Hear now, O Israel, what does Hashem, your God, really asking of you? What is He really asking? Everybody makes it such a big deal. It's like to keep mitzvot. It's such a big deal to keep Shabbat. It's such a big deal to be modest. It's such a big deal to eat kosher. Everybody makes it such a big deal. Moshe Rabbeinu tells you, what is Hashem really asking you, tachlis? Bottom line, what is He really asking you to do? From beginning to end, in the fewest words as possible. What is He asking you to do? Only to fear Hashem, your God. To go in all His ways and to love Him. To serve Hashem, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. To observe the commandments of Hashem and His decrees, which I command you today for your benefit. So this seems like a rhetorical statement. I mean, we already know from the first five books of Moses that we have to keep mitzvot. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu repeating something that we already know? I mean, we know we have to keep mitzvot. He says you have to fear Hashem. Okay, we know I have to fear Hashem. Thank you very much, Moshe Rabbeinu, for reminding us that we have to fear Hashem. What's the, what's, what's the pshat here? He says this is for your benefit. These mitzvot, first of all, it's not such a big deal. It's not such a big deal. It's loba shamayimi. This is not a Hashem is not telling you go travel to the, across the ocean to find the mitzvah of lulav and buy it over there and bring it back to America. Go travel on top of the mountain and do shema Israel only over there. You can't go to Beknesset. That's five minutes from your house. You have to do it on top of Mount Vesuvius every day. Go to the uh, you know to the uh, farm and only there you're allowed to eat when you see the shochet. Slaughtering the cow, you have to eat right there on the spot. It's kosher. No, you can't go to the supermarket to provide you kosher meat on the spot for $10. $10 you can buy a kosher meal? No, no. It's too hard for me. It's too hard for me, Hashem. What's too hard for you? What's too hard for you? What's too hard for you? But you, the, the, the meat is ready. You don't have to go slaughter the cow. You don't have to kill the chicken. It shows up. All you have to do is take $10 that Hashem gave you anyway... Give it to the cashier. The cashier gives you the piece of meat. Voila, you have food. What, you have to go to Beknesset? It's not like you have to travel in a, in a desert where it's 9,000 degrees and you have to pray outside. Beknesset is out, it's five minutes from your house. You go in an air-conditioned car. You go in five minutes later that in an automobile that takes you there. You don't have to walk. The automobile takes you there, you go inside, you're, you're spent exactly 30 seconds 
outside. So even if it's hot, you don't suffer any because you go from air conditioner to air conditioner to air conditioner. Which is another reason why you're not modest. You can't be so hot, you're an air conditioner. What's so hard? What's so hard about keeping these mitzvot? Why are you lying to yourself? Why are you lying to yourself? Why are you being a sav? Why are you making all these excuses? Because that's what Esav did. And you have to understand one final thing. A woman is very, very serious about the way the world perceives her. Especially her significant other. Especially her husband. Now, if let's say, for example, there's a wedding or a bar mitzvah or some type of an event... There's not many women in the world that would use a dress they already own. Every time there's an event, they have to buy a new dress. Doesn't matter that the other dress that they already have that costs five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, they only wore it once. Once they wore it once, no no, everybody knows I have this dress already. Like as if everybody has a mental picture of this dress. No problem. No problem. Let's say you have the money. Let's say the husband has the money. She's not torturing him. She doesn't have to work six jobs to afford the dress. No problem. Let's say she has it. So the woman buys a dress. Baruch Hashem, $25,000 dress. Dress of all dresses. But the dress is modest. Baruch Hashem, she's modest. $25,000 dress. The designer came to the house and made the dress. $25,000 for what? For a bat mitzvah. That's not even a mitzvah. Bat mitzvah is not even a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is a mitzvah. Bat mitzvah is a minag. It's not more important. It's just that it's not, it's not a mitzvah. But let's finish it with this. Let's understand something here. A woman bought a $25,000 dress for bat mitzvah, for a daughter's bat mitzvah. An hour before the bat mitzvah, an hour before the bat mitzvah, a husband who's still smoking cigarettes, hasn't done true of a cigarette yet, by accident, accident, not on purpose, he doesn't want to waste $25,000. Accident, he makes a, a cigarette hole in her dress. An accident, he made a cigarette hole in her dress. But in a place where you have to see, it's on the arm, it's on uh, somewhere, it's, it, you can't hide it. There's a cigarette hole in the dress. Is she wearing the dress to the bat mitzvah or not? Is she wearing the the dress, $25,000 dress. I mean, technically, 99% of the dress is still fine. Technically, the dress is still, 99%. She said she can't wear the dress that she already has that cost 100000 from last year's bat mitzvah. Because she, everybody knows she has this dress. But now, she'd rather wear the dress she didn't want to wear than wear the dress she just bought for 25000 because it has a tiny little hole for cigarette. Why? Oh, she's not going to the bat mitzvah b'chal. You're right. Maybe you know her. Why is she not wearing this dress? Why, fellas? Why? 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 Why is she not wearing the dress? Why? There's a hole. Ninety-nine percent of the dress is still fine. Why is she not wearing the dress? To attract negative attention to her. I'll tell you why she's not wearing the dress. She's not wearing the dress because it's incomplete. 
she's not wearing a dress because it has something wrong with it. The problem is, Rabotai, the problem is, how many cigarette holes do we have in our neshamot? And we're going up to Shamayim with all of these cigarette holes. And how many are we adding on ourselves when we just show up at strangers' houses and expect them to feed us? When we just yell at people and expect them to understand that we are already angry before we talk to them? We're putting on Abu Dazra on our head and we're expecting Hashem to understand because we're a weak generation. When we do all of these things that completely go against Torah, when they, these things that completely go against even human nature before the pre, these generation that we live in now, how many holes are we creating ourselves? You can't show up to Shemaim with the excuse, ah, you know, it was only one hole. Ah, it was only one hole. Why? Because the reality of it is that you know that you wouldn't wear the dress. The woman wouldn't wear the dress with one hole. We're showing up in Shemaim without Shuba. We're showing up in Shemaim with only holes. We're showing up naked. That's what we're showing up. So it's time for us to start taking the Torah seriously. Start taking the Chumash, the written Torah, the oral Torah, the Puskim of this generation, of previous generation. It's time for us to take everything seriously. Because the reality of it is, Esav didn't end up so well. He knew all the Torah in the world. But he had all the excuses too. He knew a ton of Torah. His father was big. His grandfather was huge. His brother was a giant. All the Torah you could possibly learn, he learned. He went to Shurim every Tuesday, every Wednesday, every every day went to Shur. But at the end of every Shur, he had an excuse of why he's not doing it. At the end of every Shur, he had an excuse of why he doesn't want to put on tzitzit. At the end of every Shur, he had an excuse of why he's not going to tell his wife to take off the wig. At the end of every shiur, he had an excuse of why he's not ready to convert yet. At the end of every shiur, he had another excuse of why he's still going to drive to Biknesset on Shabbat because he's still connected to the community. At the end of every shiur, he's still going to have an excuse of why this is going to be the only Torah learning for the entire week. He's not going to learn from the books. Every shiur he had, oh, there was a great shiur, Chazaku Ba'uk stayed the same. 20 years he's going to the Shul Torah, he's exactly the same as he started. Same, th- same thing. Twi- sometimes you have people, 20 years they go to Shul, they haven't changed a bit. They came as a sub, they left a sub. Enough with the excuses. Enough. 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 Time for us to do tshuva. It's time for us to work on ourselves. A lot of work. A lot of work. You do pass one test, you take on another one. You pass one difficulty, you get another one. Life is not supposed to be easy. If you're looking to coast, you're living the wrong life. You're in the wrong direction. You're in the wrong mentality. Wrong mentality. I'm not telling you that you should pray for difficulty. But if you're looking for everything to be easy, illusions. It's not reality. Let's be realistic. Let's take on something. Every single person has to take on something. You have to do something. Every single person watching, do something. Do something. Why? We're running out of time. 
People are dying. People are getting sick. The war is beginning. It's in the middle. Terrorism has come to America. Terrorism is in Europe. Terrorism is in Israel. Everything is about to explode. What are you going to do? Mashiach shows up. Or we have, we've pretty much, our time's run out. We show up to Shemaim with full of holes. What are you going to do? Oh no, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't sure if the, if the milk was homogenized or not. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? What excuse are you going to use? Who's going to fight for you? Who's going to fight for you in Shemaim? You're finished. It's time for us to do tshuva. Any questions? Isn't the shore for the word mitzvah action? So, okay. so that means, so if you're getting it, you're not doing the mitzvah, you're not connecting with Hashem. So if you're getting it, you're not doing it. Theoretically, yes, 100%. What you're saying is 100%, but even though a lot of things make sense theoretically, and the words make sense theoretically, the, on a practical perspective, unless somebody starts fulfilling the will of Hashem on a regular basis every single day, all the stories, all the jokes, all the mashalim, the, the, uh, the parables, the analogies, everything is worthless. All the gematriot, all the codes, everything is worthless. Why? All of it, Esav had. Everything that's in the Torah, Esav had. Esav had it in his hands. Esav had all of it in his hands. But that's why his head is the only thing that got buried in Marat HaMachpelah. Why? Because the body didn't want to follow what the head saw. The body didn't want to follow what the head knew. The body wanted to go with girls... The body wanted to go with jewelry. The body wanted to go with olama zeh, not olama ba. The body wanted this world. Hashem said, okay, the body will stay in this world. So you can learn from here until next year. You don't start doing. It's better you never learned. Time to do. It's time to do. It's time to, everybody has to do something. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. It wasn't easy for Avram. It wasn't easy for Yitzchak, it wasn't easy for Yaakov, it wasn't easy for Chafetz Chaim, it wasn't easy for Ben Ishchai, it wasn't easy for Rabavadia, it's not easy for Rav Kanievsky, it's not easy for anybody. Lo pashut liot Yehudi pashut. There's a famous saying, it's not simple to be a simple Jew. It's not simple. The point being here, it's time to do something. Time to do something, do something. This is a very simple Mishnah, but very difficult to fulfill. Why? Because from now on, you have to think about two things at all times. Number one, what does Hashem want? That's the foundation of Yirat Shemayim. What does Hashem want? What does Hashem want? Hashem want me to go to Beknesset? He wants me to sleep another hour. Hashem wants me to learn Torah? Or Hashem wants me to watch TV? Hashem wants me to yell at my wife? Or Hashem wants me to be quiet? Hashem wants me to send my kids to reform schools because the reform school is more fancy or send it to a yeshiva that's not so fancy but it's kosher. What does Hashem want? That's the first question you ask yourself every day in every single way. It's question one. Question two, people. What does He want? Not what I want. What does He want? What does she want? What is their desire? What is their like? Why? And you love your brother means you love them because you want for what they want for themselves, not what you want for them. 
A lot of people want things for other people that they want for themselves. They want to donate, you know, money to certain things to, to a rabbi. And say, listen, rabbi, why don't you uh, take this money and uh, get yourself a uh, synagogue? But maybe he doesn't want a synagogue. Hey, uh, rabbi, why don't you uh, get this money and go on vacation? But maybe he doesn't want a vacation. Hey, son, why don't you take this money and uh, go buy yourself something nice, buy yourself a watch? Maybe he doesn't want to buy a watch. Maybe he wants to, I don't know, invest in a house. Maybe he wants to buy some foods and groceries. Like, people are constantly putting pressure on other people where, where they're doing them a favor. In reality, it's not a favor. It's an obligation. It becomes a loan. You're going to do any favors for anyone? You're going to befriend anyone, even though there's no real friends in the world? At least be a decent friend. Think about what they want, not what you want. If you're ready to start giving what they want, then that means you're at least ready to be a friend. That means you're at least ready to be a good spouse. You're in the right direction. But if you're waiting for them to give you, then it's just business. It's not friendship. It's not marriage. So, two things we learn. First, Think about what is the will of Hashem. Second, what is the will of this other person that's a spouse or a friend or a child or whatever, he's connected to you? What do they want? Not what you want for them, but what do they want? If what they want, obviously, unless it's a child who doesn't even have an, a, a, a decent opinion, a valid opinion, if it's an adult, then you have to do what they want if you want to fulfill their will. But you can't force them to want what you want. You can't force your opinion on other people. Anything else? How can parents instill confidence in, in their children, in particular their daughters? The confidence in a daughter, most important part, is for the father to tell the daughter that he loves her. The big, a large part of confidence for, for a daughter, according to my wife, God bless her, uh, I learned this from her, is the connection she has with the father. Daughters are connected to fathers, sons are connected to mothers. For whatever reason or another, that's just the nature of men. Um, and so it's very important for the daughter to know that the father loves her. It's very important for the daughter to know that the father is proud of her and uh, is uh, behind what she's doing. Uh, because when uh, it's very easy for, since the mom usually spends more time with the daughter, it's very easy for the daughter to befriend the mom. Even though she's mom, she's more friendly with the mom. She's, she has less fear of the mom. Whereas the father, she doesn't spend as much time with, he's like the role model. He's like the hero. So if the hero is disappointed in the child, it becomes very, very difficult for the, per, for, for the daughter. So the first thing is for the father to express a, uh, extra attention to the daughter. The second thing is, is to show that when they do something good, to show that you're proud of them. When they do something bad, to show them that, okay, even though it's not good that they did something bad, it's not the end of the world. Help them get up. Show them that there's, there's even more value in getting up from the mistakes than in winning without any mistakes along the way. Um, so those, those are just a couple of things. Obviously, there's a long list of, of things that can be done, but the point is that to instill confidence in a person, really, in a child especially, the biggest thing is to show them love. Show them you actually care about them. And it's very, very difficult sometimes to, to do this, not because we don't care about our children, but it's very easy to be consumed with this world, consumed with our phone, 
consumed with our clients, consumed with our patients, consumed with our own problems, consumed with our ambitions. Mm-hmm. We're constantly consumed with something. The Yetzirah works extra hard to keep you busy. Because as long as you're busy, you're not thinking. You're not thinking about the most important things in life. So sometimes part of the, part of the things you need to be thinking about is the kid that's asking for your attention. Because that kid could be on the borderline of just losing it because they don't have the spine you have. They don't have the experience you have. They don't have the strength you have. Somebody just made fun of them in school and they can't take it. Somebody just told us she's ugly and she can't take it. Somebody just told them that he's stupid and he can't take it. Somebody bullied him. There's unfortunately a lot of bullies today. And unfortunately kids can be really, really mean. So if she's not getting or he's not getting that it's okay, son. It's okay, honey. It's going to be okay. Boost their confidence. They're not getting that love from Abba and Ima. You can lose them. Has for shalom. So... It's, uh, it's important for parents to spend time with the kids. And of course, it's hard. It's hard. I can tell you from my own personal experience. I mean, it's, a, uh, it's hard to stop doing kiruv, stop dealing with other people's problems, and start dealing with my own. You have to turn on and off. It's very, very difficult. I mean, I'm dealing with problems nonstop. Uh, and so it's like you don't even know when it's light, when it's, uh, when it's night, when it's day. When uh, when it's uh, when I'm supposed to be nothing, I, you lose track of time altogether. Honestly, I, unless there's a shiur, I don't know what day it is. Sometimes there's no track of time, there's no things, and unless it, if if it's not for my wife, I wouldn't even know she lives there. It's it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. So I understand. If you're in the business world, you work, you have a contract, you have a client, you have a boss, you have a customer, you have a this. It's very very easy to lose yourself in life. But that's why we have the Torah. The Torah is what's supposed to humanize you, soften you, make you actually care about the world around you, but to an, to, to an extent where you're still taking care of your own soul. A lot of people care too much about everybody else and not enough about themselves. So as far as the children, the most important thing that you could give them is the gift of Torah. If they have Torah, they have everything. If you gift them Torah... They have everything. They have an instruction set of everything they need to do and only once in a while are they going to need some support from you that they're doing okay. But if they don't have Torah, nothing that you'll ever do will be enough. Even if you homeschool them and home parent them and never leave them and you're their BFF, it'll never be enough. Why? They have no instructions of what to do. They don't know what to do with life. They don't know what the purpose of life is. They relied on you to give, you the, give them the purpose of life and you don't know it yourself. So it's important to give them the, the gift of Torah. And that's how you can actually get them to be on the right path also. Once they have Hashem, they have everything. If they don't have Hashem, it doesn't matter what they have. They have nothing. What else? You had questions. I answered all the, all the questions? You didn't even ask anyone. You already answered. It comes by itself. Yeah, I don't even... You don't even this have, is yeah. the next level already. This is... I don't even need to ask. Let's see how this is. Alright, Amen Amen. next week we have Shuim. We have uh, actually we have a shiur on uh, Sunday. On Sunday night, Bezot Hashem, we have a shiur um, in uh, by where I live. I don't know what the area is called. 
something, somewhere over there. It's five, five, ten minutes away from, uh, no, maybe like 10, 15 minutes away from where I am. Uh, the shiur, but it's men only. If anybody wants to come, let me know. Um, and then Bezat Hashem will have the uh, Tuesday shiur in uh, Aventura and then Wednesday in uh, Miami. And then Bezat uh, Hashem. Which shiur is it going to be in? When? Sunday? Sunday is actually at a house. Uh-huh. At a house. So, Bezat Hashem, anyone who wants to come, let me know. It's different shiur. I have no idea what it's going to be about, just like I didn't know about today, but it's all up to Hashem. Bauch Adonai Leolam, Amen ve Amen.